Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, August, Tuesday morning, August 23rd, 843-661-0937. Is it 24th? It yeah. is. It mm-hmm. is the 24th. Did you write down the 23rd? Now, I had my sheets here backwards. Oh. I had Monday 22nd, Tuesday 23rd, but I had Monday on top, and I looked at the other top that's 22nd. Oh. Let's do this again. Okay. Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It is Tuesday, August 24th. Eight four three six six one. Playing some bumper oh, music nine, three, seven Starting over. is our number. There you go. I'll play some Dylan. You want to play some Dylan? <laughs> nope. Oh, okay. No thanks. You don't want to. Uh, I tell you one thing. Rev. Rev's already told me this morning he ain't working on Maggie's farm either. Um, <laughs> no more. Free hole. Can, can I get a? Um, can I get a yay or nay on? Will you work at Maggie's farm? I don't know what it means. Okay. Fair, fair enough. He but, doesn't either. He doesn't either. either. But he's impacted so many musicians, right? I mean, Rev and I concluded yesterday that in the weirdest kind of way, yeah. we all respect and admire Dylan. I mean, if you're a music enthusiast, right, and you kind of follow the chain of um, acclaim, that there's a there's a there's a certain place of rare air who influenced all of these others. There's a strong likelihood that somebody you like was really influenced. Influenced. And well, let me ask you this. Let, let me ask you this. Dylan, is it is it a bit mysterious? Does, does it add mystique? Let's just hypothetically say you're a fan of Kenny Chesney, country music star. There is no connection between Kenny Chesney and Bob Dylan. you got to really reach to say Chesney's career has been impacted by Bob Dylan. But if Kenny Chesney were to sit down with Rolling Stone magazine, he would probably try to figure out a way to make you believe that, yeah, I mean, I you know, when I was a kid, I listened to Dylan. Yeah. Um, no, you didn't. Because he's supposed to say yeah, that? Yeah, th- but that's what I'm getting at. I mean, there's certain things that add a little more mystique to your career. Sure. Um, you kiss the right ring, <laughs> so to speak. So I wonder how many of these people, um, their manager says, look, man, I know you think Dylan sucks, but it's real popular. You know what I mean? It, um, it'll do you well in your musical career. If you want to be taken seriously, a lot of these people reach a certain status and they've never felt like they were taken seriously and they want to be taken seriously. And the reason or the way Rolling Stone magazine takes you seriously or Billboard, one of these, um, you know, uh, legendary musical publications, um, just telling me you've always studied Dylan. Mm-hmm. But I haven't. I don't understand Dylan. <laughs> I don't like Maggie's Farm. Um, there's two or three songs he's written in 150 years that I find, you know, interesting. Yeah, but I'm telling you, man, you want to be taken seriously when you sit down with this reporter just tell him you've always admired Dylan. You've looked at Dylan's body of work. You've tried to emulate Dylan's body of work. You've tried to integrate some of his um, genius into your work. And somebody will say, that Kenny Chesney, not just a country music singer, he's a revolutionary. Mm. I mean, he's... That <laughs> <laughs> there are certain things that you get bonus points okay. for. Okay. Uh, am I right? If you I mean, say so. I mean, you know, you don't disagree with I that. Don't I disagree. You don't disagree. You don't disagree with you that. You describe it very interestingly, but I don't get it. I still don't get it. Kenny Chesney, you've been known as a gimmicky country music singer, right? I mean, you cut your sleeves off and you wear a cowboy hat. You sing about summertime and then small towns. Everybody in country music does that. You want to separate yourself? When you sit down with this interviewer from Rolling Stone magazine, tell them how you've tried to emulate in some way, shape, or form Bob Dylan. And you'll jump to the top of the charts. Um, yeah, I mean, I do believe that there's no doubt that happens. At time. And Kenny Chesney would tell his manager, but I don't. <laughs> I never have. I don't know but two Dylan songs in my life. And to me, he's the weirdest cat on the planet. Yeah, but you want to be taken seriously, don't right. you? Just tell them that. I'm Play trust the me, game. Trust me, Kenny. Kenny, you like that big house you live in? You like that private jet that you own? 
just trust me on this one. I tr- you trusted me when I said cut your sleeves off. You trusted me when I said get in the gym. You trusted me when I said put that ha- cowboy hat on. You got to trust me. The next step is telling them how much you appreciate the work. The, the, the genius body of work that Dylan has left um, society with. Mm-hmm. I, I want to go back to yesterday's show. These shows kind of write themselves. Um, Monday, we come out of the gate. I was a far more motivated radio show host Monday morning than I normally am. You were. Um, I like to give you my best shot every Monday morning, but sometimes I have been out of the groove. I have been wasted away in Margaritaville. See, Buffett's been affected by Dylan, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, he's another one of these legendary performers. See, D- Chesney could say, I've been impacted by Jimmy Buffett, and you would believe it. I mean, anybody could, okay, I get that. I mean, singing about summertime and the beach and all these other sorts of things. Right. So, um, yeah, we're, I was I was not wasted away in Margaritaville over the weekend. I was diligently at work trying to understand in a better way the political issues of the time. Um, so we hit the ground running Monday. And then Tuesday uh, kind of feeds off of Monday. Today, I believe, historically is our best show. I mean, if you go back and look through the week, after week after week grind of Wake Up Carolina, I would probably argue when I leave here on Wednesday, I feel like we've done a pretty good job. Kind of hitting third gear. Well, I mean, I, I do. I think uh, the, the listeners have woken up. I mean, you know, we got uh, the, what is it, the the week's news is kind of in midstream where, you know, Monday, you've heard the old story, a Friday media drop, and then, you know, yep. Monday you kind of <laughs> get back in the group. Anyway, um, yesterday we touched on something with Jeff. And we hadn't heard from Jeff in a long time. And you agreed. And I think our freehold agreed. When someone calls in and articulates a point of view opposite of the host in a respectful fashion, or I don't care if it's respectful or not, it'd be disrespectful. Uh, you believe in something, say it. That makes good radio. That makes good theater. It makes good entertainment. It it, it makes... It, you know, it stirs the emotions and, and a little conflict is good occasionally. But, but it's conflict because somebody believes in something and somebody believes in something else. Right. It's not an act. It's not a, it's not a fraud. It's not a farce. It's not a game where two people are trying to pretend to be one thing. Um, Jeff, and I think the one thing that, that I thought about it last night, when I said, Jeff, okay, you would accept that our disagreement is predicated upon um, your, your, your just, uh, just a, a basic belief that government deserves more sympathy than I'm willing to give it. Government is not as bad as I say it is. Now, I believe I'm right. Jeff thinks I'm wrong. But but I understand the point of view. I understand his perspective, and I think he understands mine. I respect his perspective. I mean, I'll deny he's right, and I'll argue till the end of time that we need more people less sympathetic of government, more skeptical, more suspicious of government. But I think when we have these arguments— debates, disagreements about major issues in American politics, they have to be that there has to be some underpinning there. You can't do it just because it's popular. You can't do it just because 62% of the country say this or 58% of the country say that. It has to be because you genuinely believe in this. And I believe that the the way I can be most effective on this radio today, tomorrow, and the next, I don't know what it looks like in five years from now, is to convince you, our listeners, to be as skeptical of what the government's up to as I am. I believe that with every fiber of my being. Jeff Jeff argued yesterday, I don't think Jeff argued that the government didn't screw it up. He just says, you're pointing a finger, you're trying to make it sound like the Democrats were behind it. I want to clear that up, guys. 
I have zero trust in the Democrats. I don't have much more trust in the Republicans. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I've made that quite clear yet. I don't have any faith in the Democrats. I don't have a lot of faith in the body politic that is the Republican Party. Um, if I did, I wouldn't want Blake Masters in the Senate. I wouldn't want J.D. Vance in Ohio. I wouldn't want Dr. Oz. I wouldn't want Herschel Walker. I would have wanted more um, status quo, establishment, predictable, you know, run-of-the-mill Republicans. So, so I want to make clear, when, when I argue that this is bad or that's bad, I'm not arguing in favor of the last 25 years of Republican politics. I don't think there's a lot to see there. Th they may have a similar belief system, but the way they've operated that the way they've um, policed the country or governed the country is, I mean, I, I'm not a big fan of. So, so when, when, when I, it sounds like I'm attacking Democrats and I'm saying, you better watch this policy or that. No, I mean, it is, I'm not, it's not a, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not equally condemning the Republicans because I think they've done a little better at managing the country's affairs, but it ain't nothing to brag about. I mean, it's nothing to celebrate. Um, Pat Leahy, was on the, um, he's, he's retiring, he's writing a book, of course he is. Um, and um, he's talking about, you know, he and Dick Shelby and some of these others that have been there forever. And, um, you know, he and, he and Brett Baer, and Brett Baer is already, I mean, Brett Baer is off team Trump. I mean, I can assure you of that. I mean, Brett Baer's gotten his marching orders from Fox. I mean, once again, the opinion side of Fox is still very pro-Trump. And I'm talking about when Jesse Waters comes on at 7, when, you know, Tucker comes on at 8, when Sean comes on at 9. Uh, when Laura Ingram comes on at 10, I mean, that's the opinion side of Fox News. I mean, it's, it's not news. It's, it's one person's uh, influential opinion broadcast over the airwaves to millions and millions of people. Um, they're pro-Trump. I mean, they'll be critical at times, but, but they're by and large, America first, America first, America first. Brett Baer um, has positioned, or Fox has positioned his personality in a show in a more moderate, centric, um, newsy kind of way. But Bear just gave um, the retiring senator a pass on everything, you know, um, and it was questions like, what, what about the good old days when you and such and such, you and Shelby could get together in your office and Shelby just waxed nostalgically about, you know, yeah, I remember, Brett, you remember those days when Washington works. Washington didn't work because Dick Shelby and, and, um, and, and three or four or five other old hand senators go in a room and, and decide this is, a, you know, they... They're talking about the debt ceiling. You know how the debt ceiling got solved, Brett? Senator such and such. Senator Luger came to my office. Senator Grassley came to my office. In other words, there were four people in my office, a combined age of 320 years old, mm -hmm. uh, and, and we kind of solved. You didn't solve the problem. You did what Washington needed done. And here's the point I'm trying to make. So let's take health care. Let's say that, um, that Dick Shelby and give me an old Chuck Schumer, um, Pat Leahy, I'm, I'm thinking of the guys that the institutions within the institutions, you know, these folks are institutions within the institution of the U.S. Senate. When they're in a room trying to decide the fate of health care, they're, they're not representing it. This is what we've got to understand clearly. You don't have anybody in that room advocating for the American citizen. Shelby has had a visit from the pharmaceutical industry. Leahy's had a visit from the hospitals. Um... Grassley has had the insurance companies come to see him. So when they say we make a deal, we work it out, nobody in that room has our interest at heart. So, so when these four senators get together and they, they compromise, they're compromising between the insurance companies and the hospitals. 
and and the medical device You're manufacturers. So right. I mean, that, that's the and deal they're making. And then we're we get crap legislation. Sure, I mean, it, but it's legislation that the insurance companies wanted, that the hospitals wanted, that the the healthcare providers wanted, um, and, and it's and it's the the pharmaceutical companies. So so when he's saying Brett Bayer, Brett Bayer has an obligation to say explain explain those meetings to us. You've been as many. I mean, he talked about coming to, to the Senate when Biden got elected back in the seventies. So he's been in the Senate forty-eight years. He's eighty. I think he might be eighty or eighty-one years old. Um, and he's been put out to pasture. You know, he's decided to retire after forty-eight years in the United States Senate. Forty-eight years in the United States Senate. Brett Bear should have asked. I mean, if he's serious about journalism. Bear should have said, you know, there are a lot of people suspicious when you senior members have these meetings that nobody's there speaking on behalf of the American people. Senator, with all due respect, we believe, or a lot of Americans believe, um, that those meetings are exclusively about what the pharmaceutical companies have told you needed to happen, what the insurance companies have told you needed to happen, what the hospital associations have told you what needed. Is that true? I mean, I'd love to watch an 80-year-old senator kind of fumble through because he may tell you the truth. You know what I mean? They say the innocence of kids is the beauty of kids. They'll say anything. You know, you know, a young kid will say anything. Mama, he's fat. You know, right. um, Mama, why are you so ugly without that stuff on your face? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right, yeah. I'm the innocent of yeah, a kid, exactly. I mean, but it's it's just the truth. No, I mean, no filter. No, no, no filter at all. And old people tend to get to a point where they let their filter guard uh, down more times than not. And I would just love to hear Leahy before he leaves say, yeah, Brett, I mean, when we have those meetings, I want to know what, you know, what the pharmaceutical company told Shelby. Uh, I know what the uh, the insurance companies have told me, and we pay the price. We pay the price. I'm going to get to student debt because you know the way I feel about higher education. And five years ago, I made a controversial statement on these airwaves that higher education was a scam. I stand by that comment. It is a scam. There are more people. In fact, there's a book written by Charlie Kirk today that said college is a scam. Um, now, he acts like he's um, cutting edge. You know what I mean? He's um, he's the rebel of all rebels. He's the renegade of all renegades. He's five years late to the dance, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, because he makes some of the arguments that I've consistently made. And look, to, to, and I want to go back to Jeff's and I debate yesterday, because this is where I want to end up. Um, and then we'll take a call, take a break. I believe there are a number of issues in America that consider serious debate. They warrant discussion. They warrant dialogue. It's essential. It's necessary that Jeff give his take on uh, a perspective he has, why he has it, why he believes in that. I explain why I disagree. And maybe we can compromise. Maybe, maybe not. Um, but the issue or, or the idea of what the president said yesterday he's going to do maybe today maybe tomorrow and forgive 300 billion dollars of student debt that's indefensible but to me that is a product of a nation decline and if the country is okay with that we we may all need to do what springsteen said he was doing if trump got elected get on a plane a bus a car a train and and go somewhere other than here which springsteen didn't do well, I mean, of course he didn't do it he said of course it. he didn't Ooh. do it. There is no Malibu in, in any other country. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? There There is no um, Colt's neck in, in, in other countries. But I, don't, I just thought about the discussion that we had yesterday and the debate we had yesterday. That is the way. I mean, Jeff and I had a very amateur 
Uh, I mean, he's not a senator. I'm not a senator. He didn't get visited by the insurance companies. I didn't get visited by the pharmaceutical companies. He stated what he believed about the census. I stated what I believe about the census. Now, I want to say this unequivocally. I didn't tell you what I know the census's motivation was. Jeff didn't say he knows what the census's motivation was. But the reality is they, um, they've admitted to overcounting seven blue states and just one red state. Uh, but they've admitted to that in their post-enumeration survey. Um, there, there's some other data that they gather after the fact. Um, it's interesting. I read the U.S. Census Bureau's website last night. Um, significantly insignificant. Excuse me, statistically. Stati- significantly insignificant. <laughs> statistically <laughs> insignificant. Um, that's just not true. I mean, it's not true. There's an article in the New York Times. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal. There's an article in the Washington Examiner. There was an article in the American Conservative. There was actually an article in Vox Magazine online about the um, about the U.S. Census Bureau admitting it had overcounted its population in eight states, undercounted the populations in six states. Of all these states overcounted, one is a red state. Every single other is blue. Is that coincidental? Is that just the way the ball bounces? Is that bad luck, good luck? Or is there some intent there? Jeff doesn't know. I don't know. Now, Jeff did what most liberals do. He proclaimed the problem. They didn't have enough money. But every time the government does a lousy job and is caught doing a lousy job, there's this, you know, all of a sudden, there's this uproar of, well, the reason we did it, we didn't have enough money. And by the way, Trump cut the funding. Yeah, I mean, we, we, lack, we, we lack the manpower. We cut the, yeah. I mean, it's always a Republican. Well, I mean, the Democrat doesn't cut funding. You forget that. <laughs> I, mean, there's, I mean, the Democrat cutting funding, that, that's oxymoronic. I mean, that, that's not going to happen. If a Democrat suggests cutting funding, he will get primaried and beat <laughs> in his next Democrat uh, primary. Uh, but, but once again, I am more convinced today that something happened of intent than I was yesterday. Really? I mean, I just read the article okay. yesterday. I read the Wall Street Journal article yesterday. I mean, I've read about four or five other articles, and there's a little bit of pressure being put on the Census Bureau. Once again, um, overcounting is not, I mean, that's not weird. I mean, they, you know, they, they always say they don't get it right. I mean, they, they never get it exactly right. That's why they do these follow-up surveys. But it's pretty unusual that the two or three red states that were teetering on gaining another Congress member or not were the ones that were significantly undercounted, and the three or four blue states, Minnesota, Rhode Island, come to mind. I mean, if, if Minnesota was properly counted, they'd lost a congressional seat. If Rhode Island were properly counted, they would have lost a congressional seat. If Florida and Texas were properly accounted, they would have picked up those two congressional seats. There is no doubt about that. Now, can you uh, undo the bad? Can, can you can you give the Census Bureau a mulligan and say, hey, we you know we, we need to get this right? I mean, if the, the the government is based on population. You know, the congressional representation is based on population, and Rhode Island has one too many congressmen. I mean, we know that Ro- Rhode Island today has one too many Congress members. Minnesota has one too many members of Congress. Texas has one too few a member of Congress. Florida has one too few members of Congress. How do you make that right? I don't have any idea. But I think you I think the, the Census Bureau has gotten to a place where it needs to be investigated. Maybe we find out it was just, you know, I mean they needed more money. I mean, I'm sure that's what they will say, the lack of manpower. Well, they had plenty of manpower in Minnesota. 
They had plenty of manpower in Rhode Island. Um, apparently, they just didn't quite have enough to get all the heads counted in Texas and Florida. I believe it's because those are red, or at least trending red states, and the others are blue. Jeff believes something different, and I think the more debates we have, the better off we all are. Let's go to the, excuse me, let's take, you want to take a break or go to the phone? Uh, better take a break. Okay, let's take a break. Don't want to get too far behind. I'm sorry, caller. We'll get to you in just a couple of minutes. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. A couple of callers there. Breeze is our first caller. Hey, Breeze. Hey, what's up, guys? Kid, you're dead all right. Um, Republican Party hasn't done anything worse. They, they, they've been pathetic my entire life and probably a long time before that. And these Democrats need to all start seeing things for what they are, too. At least you and I, and a lot more Republicans, see the Republican Party for the failure it is. And you need more Democrats to need to see the Democrat Party for the failure. They, well, maybe they are the failure to them. Maybe the Democrats are getting just what they wanted. But I'll tell you what's happened in downtown Charleston. I, um, those people that own buildings out there weren't very close to me. And they have to shovel uh, human crap off the front of their um, stores in the mornings for the people that's crap on the floor right there on the, right there on the sidewalk. The police aren't doing anything because the mayor Tecklenburg is another George Soros guy. He's a he's a Democrat Marxist. The police don't do anything. These street people walk in there and start harassing the customers. And he's you know, King Street used to be a nice place to shop. It's not anymore. It's a great place to get raped, robbed, murdered, burned alive, and every other thing. But no, and that's that, that's what happens in these Democrat cities. They come in there, they harass the customers. They ask for money, and then if you tell them they, you're pleased with your mind, leave it again, then, of course, you're a white supremacist and, of course, a racist. You know, and now you said, and I will tell you, that's going to happen in Florida. It's already happening in Columbia and happening even more so at Myrtle Beach, and we're going to lose our cities just like they do in all these other Democrat-controlled places because you look where all the Yankees are coming down, that's where they're coming down to. You know, and then say, so, you know, let's say you defend yourself in Charleston. Let's say somebody does attack you. As you defend yourself, guess who's going to be prosecuted? Not them, but you. So you won't be in front of a jury of your peers. You'll be in front of a Marxist Democrat jury, just like just like Donald Trump. The New York um, District Attorney, New York City District Attorney, this effort is a Democrat. If he gets if he gets if he gets indicted in New York City, he will not be tried by a jury of his peers. The Attorney General is a Democrat. The head of the FBI is a Democrat. The judge that he'll be in front of will be a Democrat. The jury that he will be tried by will be Democrats. And we're allowing our people to be tried and sentenced by the opposing party. Now, that being said, the Republicans are allowing this to happen, too, because they're pieces of crap. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. See, I share that sentiment. I mean, I, you know, piece of crap. I mean, Breeze is a um, a colorful personality, and I guess to some degree I am as well. Um, we have a lot of people called on this show talking about what Republicans believe in. Republicans believe in this. Republicans believe in that. What have the Republicans done? I mean, look at the Democrats. I was at lunch yesterday with a friend of mine, a lawyer friend of mine. Um, we discuss things about, you know, the world and politics and life and kids and business. And, um, there were three of us to begin with and one had to leave. So it's just he and I there. And we, his father had a big impact on me. My dad obviously had a big impact on me. And we've got to the age of, um, there's more in the rear view mirror than there is in the front windshield. I mean, I think I'll live a good long time. I hope I do hope and pray I do. 
Um, but there's no way I live another as long as I've already lived. So, you know, theoretically, there's more in the rearview mirror than there is in the front. But we began talking about our parents, his dad, my dad uh, in particular, the male influence in his life, the male influence in my life. And we, we kind of got to a place where talking about finance and savings and investment and, you know, retirement about the future, you know, the fear we have about what could or could not happen. And I told my buddy, I said, you know, I believe that our parents, because we were talking about how um, more optimistic they were than we are. Our conversations always turn to, are the best days behind us? Or are we living in, a, in, a, in the middle of America's decline and demise? Um, I think we are. I mean, I sincerely believe that. I'm not, I'm not a pessimist by nature. I'm a realist. But if you believe that, do you also believe it could be turned around? <sighs> do I believe? Mm-hmm. No. I'm sorry. I mean, the bearer of bad news said it at, you know, 636 this morning. No. I mean, I still think it's the greatest show on earth, but it's nowhere near as good as it was. I mean, it's simply not. I mean, you know, look at student debt. And, and here's the point I want to make, and then we'll get to the call. So so I expressed to my friend my father's philosophy on, on, on life, business, and money. My dad was not a saver because my dad believed that America was going to give him a shot tomorrow to do better than he did today. No matter what my dad, go buy four four-wheelers for four grandkids. C- can you defend that? Probably not, but he had the money. Business was okay, and he believed in America's future. He believed in his ability to get up in a country that allowed him to be prosperous um, if he worked hard. I mean, that, that was the centerpiece of his life. My, never, my dad never talked about that. Uh, my friend's dad never talked about that. It was ingrained in them. If you'd have told my dad and this person's dad, hey, there will be a day in America sooner than later that a president of the United States forgives the student debt of people who went to college and placed that bill on the tab of people who didn't go to college. I mean, if you told my dad and his friend of mine, dad, that that is something that is going to be debated at one time, they would not have been as optimistic about America. They would have been exactly as we. Here's what I'm trying to say. My dad and my friend's dad were successful in business, and they were smart to believe what they believed in the, at that moment in time, 40 years ago. Once again, my dad could spend all of his money because he felt like America was going to provide him an opportunity to go get it again tomorrow. you damn right I bought four four-wheelers because I wanted to. And America will give me a chance tomorrow to make enough to buy four more if I'm willing to pay the price. My friend and I don't believe that America exists anymore. We believe that America will figure out a way to stop you from buying four four-wheelers and, and force you to buy two for your kids and two for kids who, whose parents decided to not go to work. My, my parents, or excuse me, my father and his father was smart to believe that because America had proven to be that. We're not that anymore. I'm sorry. We're not that anymore. If, 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 if my father had woken up in a world where the FBI had been as weaponized and politicized as it is, and it had, you know, uh, raided the home of a former president, and, and a week later forgave the student debt. I mean, think of this, guys. I mean, the, the audacity of government. That's what I think about. The audacity of people who didn't go to college, didn't borrow any money, today or tomorrow will be on the hook for people who did go to college and did get the education. I mean, that, that is arrogant and audacious. And I think when you put that on the table, you've got to accept that this is a fundamentally different country. And there's no way my father would have been as optimistic about America as he was. My dad and my friend's dad were smart 
to believe that about America because once again, Rev, America had proven to be that. It's not that today. It's simply not that today. And the reason it's not that today is you have one political party who believes in uh, redistribution is a minimum. Socialism is probably a better descript heading off toward communism. But, but just, I mean, once again, here's my mom. You ready? How do you fix your mouth telling the American public who didn't go to college, who didn't borrow any money, that tomorrow... You owe that money because you didn't. We didn't forgive the debt. I mean, that's what the media needs to get straight. We forgave the borrower. It's impossible to forgive the debt. The debt is still there. If the bank doesn't collect money from from Dave Baker on his house payment, I mean, that's a write off. The debt's still there. It's on their balance sheet. They get to write it off on their taxes as a loss. You don't forgive debt. You forgive the borrower. So when the government says we're forgiving $300 billion in student debt, no, you're not. That's impossible. You're forgiving the borrowers of that $300 billion in debt. You're transferring that liability. You're transferring that expense to the, to the, uh, the tab. Here I am with bar talk. To the tab of those who, once again, didn't go to college and didn't borrow any money. If my dad... Added that as part of the equation, there's no way he goes and buys four four-wheelers for his grandkids on an Easter because he doesn't believe America's going to provide him ample opportunity to do it again. That's the point I'm trying to make. And that is that is a nation less promising. That is a nation um, less inclined to allow people to do things um, that lead to prosperity and benefit. And that's, that's who we are. So, so to answer your question, you damn right we're in decline. You, you, there, there's no denying that. Can we fix it? I don't know if we've got the guts, nor the interest. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD. Hey, Larry, good morning. Good morning. Um, I think you know that I take a slightly, not a 180-degree out-of-phase turn with you, but I take a slightly different tact on this. Your argument to me is the argument for ending the student loan program altogether. But your argument does not address the actuality of what is happening here. And here's what I mean by that. The money's already been paid. It's already been spent. You've already, as a taxpayer that did not go to college, you already paid for someone's college. That's already happened. That is water under the bridge. The only argument, in my opinion, in favor of not forgiving student loans is a moral argument. And I agree it's the right one. But it's not what you're saying. The moral argument would be you went into made an agreement and you didn't pay it back. There's a moral problem there. And our government should not be assisting people in making an immoral decision to not pay back money that they borrowed. So you're kind of on it but to, for me, but you're not quite on it for me. But the thing about it is we have shown, America has shown, like with payday loans and other things, that predatory lending is illegal. And the, the tact that I would take in if I felt like I needed to forgive student loans would be who were, who were predatory in their lending schemes. And I would have to look at, I mean, you think about it now. I mean, be honest. You, you're talking about an 18-year-old. And we'd say, well, they're legally an adult. But you've, you've had an 18-year-old, and I'm sure you didn't treat your 18-year-old exactly like you treat adults. 
they put them in a room, they separate them from their parents, and they say, this is what you need to do. And we're smart, and we care about you, and we've got college degrees, and we work at this college, and if you want to be successful, you need to sign here. We wouldn't put up with that anywhere else. You wouldn't put up with that in a car dealership. You wouldn't put up with it anywhere. You wouldn't let it, let them do it to old people, but for some reason we let them do it to young people. And there are problems with the nature of student loans, a lot of them, which to me is the argument for why you ought to get rid of them altogether. Not necessarily, oh, these people now, to say, oh, well, if you make less than X, you get this much money taken off, totally immoral. So I'm, I'm with you on that. But I don't, I don't think that your argument correctly addresses the issue because your argument is don't make student loans, don't put taxpayers on the hook for other people's college education, which I think is a perfectly reasonable argument to make. But you've already done it. It's already been paid. There are no banks that need money. This money is almost 100% held by the United States government. So they can, quote, forgive it, because everybody in the transaction has been paid, and everybody who's going to be robbed has already been robbed. They're not robbing anybody else again. I mean, if you say, well, these payments would go back to the, to, the, to the government, and then that would be money that I wouldn't pay. Listen to how silly you sound, because you know that the federal government is never going to rebate your taxes, and they're never going to spend less money. This is actually cutting money from the federal government in the form of payments that they won't receive, which if the Democrats really thought about what they're doing, they might not do it, which is also why I believe, and I'll make this prediction for the second time, that the Republican Party will actually be the party that does something with student loans, not the Democrat Party. That's my two cents. Thank you, Larry. That's a lot. Larry's actually arguing from a pragmatic state. I, I think Larry is a very philosophical person, but he's arguing from a pragmatic position. Um, I don't disagree with what he said on the, on the, on the, in, in a broad scope. Now, I do disagree with the nuanced argument. Ninety uh, percent of one point seven trillion dollars has already been guaranteed. You are the cosigner. You've co-signed for 90% of $1.735 trillion in student debt. I mean, that's the point Larry's making. That train has left the barn. That horse has left the station. There's nothing <laughs> we can do about that. And if you believe the government's really going to take that money and do a better job of balancing there, I mean, Larry's taking a very pragmatic position. I don't disagree with that. Hold on. Let's come back because there's a lot to chew on about the morality and, and what, what financial formula works moving forward. If the Republicans get in charge— and want to really address the issue of student debt, what needs to be done. Take a break. Back in a minute. You know, talking about a pragmatic position or not, mine is a bit philosophical in that I think the morality issue overweighs the financial component of this. Um, I'm willing to make a deal. I mean, I'm a pragmatic man. I'm a reasonable man. I'm willing to make a deal. Let's forgive the $1.7 trillion in student debt and abolish the student loan program. I mean, I'm willing to make that swap right now. I mean, I'm not in a position to, and it's easy for me to say over the airwaves. Um, but yeah, I mean, from a, I understand the argument Larry's making, and I think it is it is absolutely well founded to make that argument. That is a very pragmatic argument to make. That money's gone. I mean, it doesn't matter if they forgive the debt or not. That money is gone once the government became 90% guarantee or guarantor of 1.7 something trillion dollars in student debt. I mean, once again, that proverbial horse had left the, the barn. Let's get it right this time. But but I'm willing to make that pragmatic deal. I'm willing to make the biggest pragmatic deal of all. As a conservative Republican, I'm willing to for, forgive and put on the tab of we the people $1.7 trillion in student debt in, in, in exchange for abolishing 
the student debt program. Let's put higher education back where it's supposed to be, an affordable opportunity to better um, young people's lives by giving them skills and an education that will allow them to prosper in the private sector. Let's stop treating students as clients or customers or clientele. And so, yeah, I mean, if you want to be pragmatic, let's be real pragmatic and let's swing for the fence. Now, now here's what, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, what would that do to the balance sheets of the colleges? Just add another couple of trillion dollars, the balance sheet of the college. They've already got the money. I mean, the colleges have made out like bandits. The colleges have no skin in the game. Let's go back to the meeting that Pat Leahy talked about they've had on Capitol Hill when something monumental needs to be done. And he's talking about when the when the debt ceiling came about, you know, he said, you know how we solved it, Brett? Four of us. Four of us got in my office. I mean, imagine the arrogance. But it's not arrogant in Washington. It's getting things done on behalf of the American people. So Leahy says when the debt crisis and, and the, um, excuse me, when the, um, when the debt ceiling issue came up, and it appeared there were not going to be a deal to be had. Um, he and Grassley and McConnell and I think maybe Schumer or another uh, Democrat, they got together and they hashed out a deal. What did they hash out that deal for the betterment of the American public or for Washington? I mean, you know the answer to that. So, so here's what happens on student debt. Um, how many people are in that room when you suggest that the government may be uh, the backstop for 90 percent of 1.7 trillion dollars in student debt i mean do you believe the parents of kids are in that meeting i mean do you believe that the the american tax foundation are in that meeting to find out what sort of um impact this could have on the federal debt of course not um but you can bet your sweet bottom dollar that universities (laughs) were well represented in that um so some of the financial institutions that are engaged in student lending were very involved in that that's what the deal is guys there are some people on that side of the door and there are some people on this side of the door. And we've got to get more people on that side of the door, on this side of the door, and more on this side of the door, on that side of the door. And we've got to get government back working for the American people. Now, we can go all the way back to a court case. We touched on this uh, several years ago when I started down the road of finding out um, when did a game warden require college education? I mean, why does a game warden require a college education? Um when, you know, the, the proper society decided that that should be the case. But it really goes back to a Duke Power case, the Griggs case in 1971. I want to explain that in just a bit. I think we got a call. Let's go to the phone, and then we'll come back. Joe in Hartsville. Hello, Joe. Yeah, if you remember, the student loan debt exploded in 2010 when the government took it over during the Obamacare thing. The reason we have so much unpaid debt is they took the I think it was at the time fifty three billion dollars in interest that was being made off the loans and applied it to Obamacare instead of the student loan debt. So this has been building the whole time. But as usual they're lying to the American people. To start with, the president doesn't have the authority, so this will be litigated he doesn't have the authority to forgive debt. That's nowhere in the Constitution, though it really doesn't matter to them. But the the money that they are going to be forgiven is going to be added to their income taxes. And they, I don't think they realize that. And it'll be 10 years before any of this debt is forgiven. So, like I say, all they're doing is, is buying votes just like 
You know, they had to add money to to Obamacare in this latest uh, Inflation Reduction Act because they've suspended payments on student loans for the last two years. And now they're going to suspend them again until January. So they're just lying to the American people, and they're buying it like, you know, there's it's nothing. Don't look here. It's a shiny thing. Y'all, y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. The NCAA, I mean, excuse me, the NAACP, uh, NCAA may be mad about it. I don't know. The NAACP's aggravated. Uh, they said that basically, I'm, I'm, I'm interpreting here now, or I'm uh, paraphrasing um, a little bit loosely here, but they're arguing, the NAACP is arguing to forgive all of student debt. The majority of student debt is incurred by African-American uh, borrowers. So the, the NAACP is saying forgiving 10000 is an insult. The majority, uh, the average African American student debt is fifty-two thousand some odd dollars. They want they want all of that forgiven, and they're basically arguing that this is what the Democrats owe the African American community because the African American community did what they always do, and that is ninety percent of its voters voted for the Democrat. In other words, I think their exact words. I'm not paraphrasing here. Um, we save the democracy. So the NAACP is saying that they, along with the African-American vote, saved the democracy from the danger and menace that was Donald Trump. And how do you, how dare you pay us back with only forgiving 10000 of the average $52,000 in debt that's, um, you know, that African-American. I mean, you twist yourself in knots, but when nobody pushes the issue, it doesn't matter. I mean, Joe says they're lying. They are. They always do. They always have. Why wouldn't you lie if nobody challenges on what the truth is? I mean, what is the benefit of telling the truth other than the moral compass argument? But what is the what is the reason that you would shoot the American people straight if nobody ever challenges you on being dishonest, fundamentally dishonest? Um, that's the luxury of being a Democrat. See, I just don't know that they're going to have the political uh, bounce or bump that they think they will, because if it's just ten thousand dollars and you have people uh, like the uh NAACP that say, hey, that's not enough. I mean, it's an insult. If they look at it as an insult, where's the political... And it's not just an insult. You owe us, President Biden. We did what you expected us to do. 90% of our black voters voted for you, and this is how you pay us back? I mean, imagine that, guys. I mean, this is where we are in America. The NAACP... <laughs> they say it publicly. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's on a tweet. I mean, they sent out a tweet that said, you know, how dare Joe Biden believe that that's payment in full? We helped get him elected, and this is how he pays us back? I mean, this is where we are in America. And I'm not trying to be racially uh, motivated by any stretch of the imagination because many, many white kids, many affluent families will have debt repaid. Uh, the family's got a lot of money. The kid doesn't make a lot. Uh, so, so they meet the requirements or thresholds of income to have their student debt repaid. Um, so it's going to be, you know, 10 or 11 or 12. I think 10,000 is the number now. But this is just the beginning. The argument I'm trying to make is, look, let, let's make a grandiose deal. Let's let's pay off or let's forgive. We're not forgiving the debt. We're forgiving the borrower. I mean, let's clarify that. We're not forgiving the debt. I mean, as it comes to the moral argument, you borrow the money, you're obligated to pay it back. If you don't, that, that's when we get in all these, you know, the, the right and wrong and ethics and morality of, of the issue. Um, I mean, there, there have been many things not paid back. I mean, the bank probably writes off 
one or two percent of all revenue annually. I mean, that when they go and it, when when a bank models a budget, I gotta believe I don't run a bank, but I gotta believe the bank doesn't believe it's going to collect every loan it ever made. I mean, do you? I mean, I think banks no. write off a certain percentage. I don't know what it is. It's less than one percent, more than than one percent. No idea. I would imagine in certain economic times, it's high higher percentage of write off than it is in other economic times. So so business deals go south and people can't pay the debt. I mean, I get that. But there's a responsibility you have. And if you can't meet that responsibility, there are consequences to that responsibility. But Rev said during the break, and I'll agree with him, the the unusuality of the federal government is its ability to print money. I mean, it has a, a unique capacity that nobody else has. Just find another $300 billion. We've looked and can't. Well, just create it. Just create it out of thin air. Do what we've been doing for the past 30 or 40 years. Hey, boss, we looked everywhere we know to look. That shoebox we had behind the shrub, under the side of the gutter. Remember your wife saw a suitcase, a briefcase we kept all that money in? We just can't find an extra $300 billion laying around. We looked every damn where we know to look, and there just ain't $300 billion out there. Well, somebody called Jerome and tell him to print another $300 billion. I mean, that's what we got to do. Um, and I think Joe's right constitutionally. The president does not have the authority to appropriate or forgive appropriations, but we live in a very unconstitutional time. In American history, I'm going to go back to this real quick, and then we'll go to other call. Okay, we'll go to um, the Griggs versus Duke Power case. That's really, I mean, well, when I see a problem like student debt, I often go, well, "Who thought that was a good idea anyway?" I mean, who thought it made any sense for everybody to be encouraged to go to college and for the government to be the guarantor? Uh, a family that can't afford it are going to send their kid to college and borrow money that they may or may not be able to pay back. How many 18-year-olds can go to a bank and get a, a loan to start a business? I mean, you're, you're, it's, to you bankers out there, 18-year-old wet behind the ears kid comes into a bank and says, hey, I've got this idea. I want to make this widget, but I need to borrow money to make this widget. Fill this form out. Give me a pro forma. Show me how you're going to pay me back if I do loan you this money. I know your dad. I know your brother, but I don't know you real well. Explain to me how you're going to pay this debt back. But the student debt model has never worked like that. And it dawned on me one day. I had a friend of mine trying to get a job. And he couldn't get the job because he didn't have a college degree. I said, what are you trying to do, man? Um, mathematician, biologist, doctor, lawyer, engineer, trying to be a game warden. Game wardens have to have college degrees? Yeah. Why? I don't know. They just do. I mean, that's kind of the casual nature of the conversation. Well, the busy head syndrome kicks in. Why in South Carolina does a game warden have to have a college degree? So a game warden can't be a game warden, but if they've got a degree in political science from Francis Marion of Coastal Carolina, they can. Explain the logic behind that. There is none. There's absolutely no logic until you dig a little bit and you go to the Griggs-Duke power case. This is a U.S. Supreme Court decision in 1971 that revolved around what they call disparate in, uh, impact. Um, that's, um, that's lawsuits that involve... Uh, what effect criteria has on whether you're allowed to advance or not. And Duke Power had a, a policy within the company, um, a rule, a policy in politics rule. There was a rule uh, in, the, in the company handbook that said um, an employee tried to transfer into a higher level of employment must pass an intelligence test. Didn't call it an IQ test. Um, you've proven to be smart enough to do this job, but this other job is a promotion, increase in pay, more responsibilities. 
We don't know where your ceiling is. We don't know what your capacities are. There is no doubt you can do the job you're doing now. You've applied to do this other job at Duke Power that we pay more money for, but we believe it's a little harder. And we need to know whether you can do the job or not. Here's this intelligence test. Go take this intelligence test, and if you score proficient, then we're going to promote you within the company. The 1964 Civil Rights Legislation, actually Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Legislation, convinced the Supreme Court in 1971 that that was racial discrimination. So all of a sudden, a company that has positions that are um, higher paid, um, a little harder to do, require a little more advanced skill set, um, maybe, dare I say, a little smarter individual, the court said you can't do that anymore. Well, how do I determine whether this person can do that job or not? And the college just said, hey, we'll do that for you. What do you mean we'll do that for you? We'll insist to require that every game warden have to have a college degree. Maybe in biology, maybe in something related to that field, but it might even be political science. Who cares? He'll have a college degree. So the Griggs-Duke power case, I would argue, was the impetus that led. Now, this is 1971, and it probably took several years for it to become effective in the workplace or to the point where people noticed um, you're doing this. But, yeah, Duke Power had a policy within its company that said Dave Baker is doing this job, and we pay him $25,000 a year to do this job. This is 1971. Dave Baker wants to do that job that pays forty grand a year, but we're not sure what Dave's ceilings are. We're not sure if he's competent enough, capable enough, dare I say politically incorrect, smart enough to do this job. So, Dave, I'll tell you what you do. You've been a good employee at that job. Take this intelligence test and come back in a day or two or three. We'll have the score. And, and if you know if you score good enough, you can take that job. We think you're, you've proven you can do it. I mean, there's some merit to your argument now. The 64 civil rights legislation said that is racially uh, discriminatory. And the colleges said, okay, or the businesses said, well, how do we know now? I mean, what, what can we do to prove this person can do that job or not? And the colleges kind of jumped in and said, hey, we'll, we'll do some of that for you. Next thing you know, um, two million kids are going to college that don't need to be going to college. Three million kids are going to college that don't need to be going to college. Four million kids are going to college that don't need to be going to college. Um, the colleges say, Wow. We're experiencing a lot of growth. There's a big demand for our product. Wonder if us raising the prices would create demand destruction. <laughs> and they raise the prices. No demand destruction. Raise the prices. No demand destruction. Raise the prices. Somebody says, damn, college is expensive. It's to the point now I'm not sure it's a wise investment. I don't have enough money to send my kid to go to college. And I can't ask the banker to loan me money to send my 18-year-old to Clemson to get a degree in Shakespearean theater or USC and get a degree in Greek literature. And that's when the government said, don't worry about it, we'll backstop that debt. And the colleges said, so the government's going to backstop the debt. That means if Dave Baker doesn't pay his student debt back, the government will. Get the financial team in here tomorrow, and let's have a meeting about what tuition needs to be, how many dorms we need to build. Do we need to build dorms with rock climbing walls or not? Do we need to build dorms with Starbucks in them or not? We need amenities, guys. We need a quality of life component about college because we can add uh, a lot of money to the tuition. And that's kind of no how risk. we've gotten here. And no the risk. absurdity of all of it, I mean, the absurdity of all of it, it has turned into a scam. 
The idea of higher education is very sincere. The idea of higher education is a benefit to America, a more enlightened society, a more well-rounded society, a better educated society. But higher education has abused the privilege and responsibility and morphed into something it was not intended to be. And I would argue that the majority goes back to this Griggs versus Duke power when the court said, you can't do it that way. And the colleges said, we'll design a model. You want competent, smart, dedicated people? They must go to college. That'll prove how smart, dedicated, and competent they are. You want good game wardens? You need college graduates. That's absurd. That's ridiculous. Silicon Valley is the first part of the economy that I've seen. I mean, Google is actually hiring a certain percentage of their employees that didn't go to college. It started at about 3%. I think it's up to about 10 or 12% And that now. changed. I mean, they started in the early years of those companies. They were, they demanded college degrees, college degrees, degrees, college degrees. Well, now, I mean, Google is the first company, I think, that has seen the scam that it's become. Um, what makes you a better game warden having gone to college? Let me, do, let me say this. Why wouldn't a game warden be better off uh, an eventual, let's say a kid 18 years old likes the outdoors, likes nature, uh, kind of a labor of love, so to speak, not interested in becoming a millionaire. He knows that's not the profession to become enormously wealthy, but he's passionate about it. He wants to do it. He loves the outdoors. He loves nature, loves animals. Is it better for that kid to go to Francis Marion four years and get a degree in political science that, that allows him or makes him eligible to be a game warden, or is it better for him to get in the truck with a game warden and participate in an apprenticeship program? I mean, you know the answer to that. The obvious answer is get in the truck with the game warden and learn the, learn the trade, learn the craft, gain experience. But that doesn't grease the wheel. That doesn't pay the bills at colleges. Administrators have millions to make. Professors have millions to make. With all due respect, and I'm not singling out a college. I mean, I think all these, guilties are, all these colleges are guilty. The system is guilty. Some colleges are less guilty than others, but the system is guilty of scamming the American public to the point now of an American president saying, these people can't pay this debt back, maybe you the taxpayer. So, so in essence, and I'll conclude with this, if you didn't go to college and didn't borrow money, today you're helping pick up the tab of those that went to college and did get that so-called education. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. So there's the grandiose deal. I mean, there, there's the big deal. I mean, if you're out there and you want to make a, a pragmatic approach or take a pragmatic approach to um to really American government in theory, let's forgive all the student debt. That's unfair. I mean, there, there's no morality uh, to that. I mean, that, that is immoral. It's impractical. It's unreasonable. But in exchange for forgiving all the student debt, let's abolish the student debt program. Now, and was that going to happen? Absolutely not. But I think these are some of the deals that need to be discussed as we address some of the political ills in America. Let's take a bit of a respite, if you will, and go to something far more exciting and more important than American politics, what we normally discuss here. Um, and that is football season around the corner. Um, there you go, Rev. See, you now somebody said they had the lights on last night at the stadium, kind of um, oh, yeah. trial running. I saw that. Online. Some of the improvements they made, some of the bright lights and fanciness. That it goes along I can't with, wait. with college football. Yeah, I'm ready as oh, well. Cool. My, my kids are extremely excited about this year. And one of the reasons that my kids are excited is they have a coach that creates a high level of enthusiasm and excitement within the program. And we're fortunate to have him with us this morning, head football coach at South Carolina, Shane Beamer. Good morning, coach. How are you? 
I'm doing great. Appreciate you. Uh, appreciate you guys saying that. Hope you're doing well also. We are doing well. So this is the time of year that hope springs eternal. The Gamecocks have the same record as Alabama, the same record as Georgia, the same record as the Dallas Cowboys. Um, Coach, you took a, I would say, a marginal roster last year with a lot of deficiencies. I mean, I'm a big believer in quarterback play, and I think we don't have consistent play there. You have a lot of problems in winning football games, but you managed to have what most of us consider a successful season. What would a successful second season look like to head coach Shane Beamer? Uh, we just continue to progress as a program and, and continue to get better. Uh, we, we maximize the potential and the ability of uh, this year's team, and, and that's all we ever really talk about. We don't talk about you know uh, specific wins or games in regards to uh, what we want to do as a final product for us. It's just be the very best we can be and, and uh, get to the end of the season and be a much better football team than what we are right now and what we were last year. Coach, we as Gamecock fans have historically found coaches, and whether whether it was intentional or not, we wondered whether they were using this as a stop along the way. This job was to set them up for another job. You've insisted that this is a job that has always been at the top of your list. Why? Uh, it's, <clears throat> personally, it's a uh, place that we love. You know, my family and I, two of our three children were born here in Columbia, uh, my wife and I, it's the first place we lived after, you know, she and I got married. Um, even after we left Columbia the first time, we always came back here in the summer times for vacation and things like that. So I love living in South Carolina. Um, uh, love living in Columbia. Family is happy. Wife and kids are uh, very happy here in Columbia. And, and then just from a, you can have all that, but you better be at a place where you can win and be successful and certainly feel like we, we have that here. We have the resources uh, to win at the highest level. We've shown that in, in other sports here at Carolina. We wanted a really, really high level football-wise when I was here before. And uh, the the resources, the, the facilities, so much has improved since I was here uh, before. You know, So we have a recruiting base around us. We have great academics, great facilities, great administration. So you have what you need to be successful. Plus, it's a great place to be. And uh, now don't get me wrong, we have to continue to – move forward and, and, and always try and stay on the cutting edge as a athletic department and, and as a program uh, and, and not ever get content. But, you know, as long as we continue to do that, we have the things that we need to be successful here. It seems to me, and I want to kind of um, diverge from the, you know, what offense do you run, what defense do you run? I think your time is valuable. I want to be respectful of your time. But it seems to me that there's never been a more changing, quote, unquote, time in college football. There are a lot of things – outside of the purview of what offense you run, what defense you run. You got NIL, you got basic free agency in college football conference expansion, um, you know, the realignment of college football. How does that affect how you do your job and how involved are you in making sure the university is positioned in some of these ancillary aspects of this um, this new version or new iteration of college football? Yeah, it's certainly a different time than uh, any coach previously has ever had to um, uh, manage. Thankfully, you know, our administration has tried to be on the forefront of that. And uh, whether you agree with name, image, and likeness or not, it's here. Uh, and it's a part of college athletics now. And you better get on board with it and figure out a way to make it a positive for your student-athletes. And I feel like we have here in Columbia and credit our administration for that, for not – 
sitting still and, and being aggressive and, and trying to put our players and student athletes in the best positions to be successful, knowing that it ultimately, you know, what, what you do on the field is what really matters. And, and uh, our players have done a great job of understanding that. And as far as, uh, as far as me, it's, it's different. Um, you know, I'm not sitting in my office uh, 15 hours a day reaching out to different businesses and corporations to try and arrange name, image, and likeness deals for our players. The thing that we try and do is, as a program, just um, I know it's cliche, but just make this program the very best it can be and, and worry about the people that we have in this program and making this a great experience for them uh, on and off the field. Uh, you know, our players would tell you this is not an easy program to be a part of, but it's a program that they want to be a part of. And uh, that's, a, that's what's important to me is work really hard, be demanding, hold these guys accountable. Uh, make it a place where they don't want, you know, to leave and, and you know, worry about what you can control. And and, uh, and then, thankfully, there's a lot of other people that, that help with the other stuff as well. There are many people who believe this will separate the haves and have-nots. There will be more disparity in those who don't have and lack the financial resources to play football at an elite level. And there, there will be these, obviously, that do have uh, and I have made the commitment to, to get there. Um, as a football coach, how do you want to be involved in making sure the University of South Carolina is a have? I mean, obviously, you're you're in charge of the football program. But as overall, I mean, I would argue the SEC, the football coach, is the face of the athletic department. Maybe you don't embrace that, but I mean, as a fan, I don't think there's any question that you are the face of the University of South Carolina's athletic department because of our allegiance and, and involvement in the, in the SEC – but but when we start distinguishing the haves and have-nots, how involved would you like to be in making decisions or helping make decisions to advance South Carolina as one of the haves? Yeah, I truly feel like we are, you know, one of the haves, and we need to continue to to be uh, one of those as well, and, and confident that we will. We have great you know support from our administration, and uh, we work uh, extremely well together. Uh, those guys in our administration, President Emerita is our new president, Coach Tanner, our athletic director, Chance Miller, our deputy athletic director. You know, there's some uh, really, really uh, smart people in that group that are doing a great job from that standpoint. I'll do whatever they, you know, need me to do. And, and certainly I want to be involved in as much as I, uh, as much as I possibly uh, can be, you know, and going and, in regards to that, we're talking about name, image, and likeness specifically. I mean, it's—I don't think there's any secret. I, I truly believe that our, uh, the University of South Carolina athletic department, is as well positioned as any athletic department around from a name, image, and likeness standpoint for our student athletes. Just because uh, we've got a rabid fan base, we we have we, we we're in the state of south carolina where we don't compete with pro sports we're right in the center of the state in the capital of south carolina uh there's not a lot of uh competitors if you will from a from a, a name image and like the standpoint that that our student athletes are competing with if you will for for endorsement deals and, and opportunities uh in so many ways we're the only show in town so we're extremely well set up right now from that standpoint we're extremely well set up to be uh, to continue to be one of the haves and anything that our administration and our university needs me to do in order to do that, I, I would love to do. I've got an opinion when it comes to the NIL and, and so some of the um, uh, some of the difference, some of the difference in how the players treated as a student athlete today and and how they were. If you don't give an inch, you may eventually be forced to give a mile. But that's my opinion um, and my opinion only. What do you perceive as fair to the player in this ever changing? 
um, dynamic in amateur college athletics? Yeah, uh, good question. Um, you know, let me back up. And, and before before uh, name, image, and likeness uh, came into effect, the you know, if you're a football player at South Carolina, or you're a football player at Clemson, or you're a football player, you know, wherever at this level, you um, you 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 had it pretty good. And from a what you're what you were receiving from a scholarship standpoint, from a uh, the money that you brought in, from a cost of attendance. Uh, standpoint, you know, the, the Austin money, which allows us to reward our student athletes for academic performances, uh, monetarily, you know, it was, it was, had, it was as good a time as probably ever. Um, if you were a student athlete, just what you were able to, um, the resources you had at your disposal, if that makes sense. Uh, and then the name, image, and likeness certainly came in. And, and in regards to that, you know, uh, um, you know, I'm happy for our guys. You hear a lot about, you hear a lot about the horror stories of NIL and 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 used and, and and it being used the way that it wasn't intended to be used. What you don't hear about is, you know, the four or five uh, football players that we had on our team last year that used money that they brought in from name, image, and likeness uh, opportunities uh, to to take underprivileged youth on a shopping spree around Christmas and different things like that, football camps that some of our guys have put on for, for youth in the summertime. So I'm proud of our guys that they're utilizing it in the right way. And, and again, go back to kind of what I said a minute ago with our university. We're, we're continuing to try and be aggressive and on the forefront and help our players as much as they can uh, with, it, with, the law being in, in, with the law being in effect now. Coach, last question. I wake up on a Tuesday on the wrong side of the bed, and I got the Gamecocks at 4-8. and eight. The next day I wake up on the right side of the bed, I got the Gamecocks at 10-2. and two. Um, Let's take bad case scenario off the table. I didn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. I got up on the right side. Tell me a reason that we Gamecock fans should be optimistic and expect or have high expectations about this edition, uh, your second year of South Carolina football. Yeah, I like the uh, wake up on the right side of the bed uh, record more than the wrong side of the bed for sure. Um, I would say, you know, one, we got a great group of young men on this team. That uh, they just they love to work, they love to practice. Um, you know they've done everything that we've asked them to do since uh, since January when they came back for the fall for the spring semester. So uh, the work ethic is there, and the desire to be uh, great is there for sure. Um, you know excited about the added depth that we have at every position, offense, defense, and special teams. You could look at it right now and say we have more depth. Uh, and competition at that position than what we did last year, which I'm excited about. And, uh, it's year two in, in in these systems, offense, defense, special teams. We return all three coordinators, so our players have a better understanding of what we're what we're asking them to do because it's their second year in this system. And and uh, and then you know the fact that we brought in a quarterback and Spencer Rattler that has won uh, a conference championship before. He hasn't lost a college football game since September of 2020. Uh, so, you know, he's a guy that has won at the highest level. Um, you know, so all those, I think there's lots of reasons for optimism, but we have a lot of question marks and certainly have a lot of work uh, to do uh, to continue to improve. But uh, the, the work ethic is not in question. And like I said, the desire from our guys to, to be great is certainly not in question either. Coach, I want to say this. As someone who's fought of the Gamecocks longer than I care to mention, um, I don't know that we've ever had a coach who appears to be excited 
about the program as we are about the program as we head into a season. And I want to thank you for that. And I mean that sincerely. But this train ends up where this this train ends up, and the record will be what the record will be. But the enthusiasm and excitement and commitment you brought to this, pro- this program is, is something that has been few and far between. And I personally want to thank you for that. And I think the, uh, the fans are really uh, – if you wonder if the fans have your back, um, th- there were a lot of disgruntlement in this program several years back. And you have squelched that by your commitment, your excitement, your enthusiasm. And that, my friend, has been highly contagious. Thank you for that. Yes, sir. No, I appreciate you saying that. And, and that means so much coming from uh, from you. And, and it is very sincere and it is very real. I, I do love this place. And, and you know, this is, I'm glad there is a lot of excitement about our program right now. And, and it's not just me, but it's our players, our coaches, our staff. We're all really excited about where we are. And we all truly, you know, we believe in this place without a doubt. And this is uh, year two of, uh, of, of a long journey, I hope. So, you know, the way that recruiting is going right now, we're only going to continue to get better. Uh, we're excited about this team that we have <clears throat> this season uh, coming up. But, again, this is uh, just the – uh, the early stages of, of what I hope will be a long, long, long journey uh, here at Carolina. Well, we appreciate your time this morning. Good luck this week. Good luck preparing next week. And uh, and we'll see you Saturday after next in uh, in Williams Bryce. Thank you, sir. Yes, sir. Have a great weekend. Take care. Thanks. Do the same. Head football coach, University of South Carolina, Shane Beamer. Kind of an, an infectious personality. I mean, he really does. And I mean that sincerely. As someone who really – um, was disgruntled about the state of the program several years ago. And, I mean, I've made it known. I mean, I'm as big a Gamecock fan as there is. And at times I felt like a glutton for punishment, uh, having kind of mm-hmm. followed uh, that road less traveled. Um, he's instilled a certain level of optimism and excitement in this program that is sincere, is genuine. He's where he wants to be. Um, will he be successful? We shall see. That uh, That chapter of the book has not yet been written. Take a break. Back. In just a few minutes. 843-661-0937. You know, the remark I made during the interview with with Shane, um, to me, the interesting part is if you don't give an inch, eventually you'll be forced to give a mile. The NCAA had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to advantage the player in a little better fashion. I mean, I'm not saying pay the kid a multi-million dollar contract. I mean, it's still amateur athletics. But, but you had to believe, Reb, that sooner or later, the model that allowed the university to reap millions of dollars in benefit, the coaches making a million dollars, assistant coaches making, you know, I mean, Saban just signed, what, a 10-year, $93 million contract? Yeah, he just got an extension and a raise. Yeah, like, like $93 million. I mean, who believes the kid uh, gets a scholarship and that's an equal and fair share? No, I mean, that's ridiculous to believe that. And I'll tell you what happened for me. It might have been Venables. might have been Brent Venables at Clemson. But I remember the day that an assistant coach from around here signed a contract for like $1.75 million a year. I mean, that was unheard of for a head coach at one time. And, and when those numbers were real, when the head coach made 800000 and the assistants made 100000 okay, the, the value of that education is probably commiserate with what the, the contribution made. But how many people, as great as Nick Saban is, how many people go to the game to watch him coach? I mean, there's no doubt Nick Saban is as good a college football coach that has ever breathed God's oxygen. I mean, there's no disputing that. I mean, he wins national championships every other year. I mean, the absurdity of how successful they've been. I mean, you could argue today he's the greatest college football coach ever. 
I mean, I'm not saying he is, but you could easily argue. But how many fans go to Tuscaloosa to watch Nick Saban coach? The performers. It would be like the Rolling Stones putting on a, a concert for 20 years, but the manager making more than Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. I mean, the performer has to get a fair and an equitable share. And in the model that was prior to the TV deals and, and some of the increases of, of tuition and ticket prices, that model became antiquated. And the NCAA should have said, um, honestly, p- between themselves, hey, this train's coming. We better get ahead of it. But they didn't. They doubled down. They tripled down. They quadrupled down. The head coach gets $5 million. The head coach gets $7 million. The assistant got $2 million. The university's adding all these lights and parking amenities and, and you know, tailgating. And I mean, I get all that. I mean, the fan experience was a priority, and I commend the universities for doing that at Clemson and South Carolina. But, but the financial model was just completely and totally disconnected from reality. And I think had the NCAA said, look, we've we got to revisit this. We, we've got to do something for these student athletes, that they're contributing so much to this economy that they need to receive something in return. But they didn't. And all of a sudden, you don't give an inch, you end up being forced to give a mile. And that's where we are. And we've got free agency. We've got the wild, wild west with NILs. Um, now, now, to me, if I had to take one or the other, I'd take what we've got now. But I do believe, um, as crazy as I can be about these things, that we've got to temper it to some degree. Uh, because the next thing you know, Texas, Texas A&M, Southern Cal, Ohio State, Michigan, and Florida will have all the great players because they've got the deepest yeah. pockets. Um I read the other day that Texas A&M has already had a donor this year give $25 million, $15 million, and $10 million. Might be 5 or $10 million. Um, How many donors has Clemson ever had to give $25 million? How many donors does South Carolina ever have to give $25 million? NC State. You know, you, you can't – I mean, you, there's a reason the NFL allows the worst team to draft first. Competition and parity creates interest in your product. And if people aren't interested in your product, your product will struggle. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few minutes. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's get back to um, business as usual. That may, I mean, unless you don't want to. Rev and I have discussed this, and I want to get your input on this. What if we took the last hour of the week and made it a just anything goes uh, Friday? In other like words, free for all. Yeah, but the, the, the delegation is here at 8 o'clock. They get out at normally about 845 or 850. Um, we wrap up that hour, and for one hour, we can talk about everything from giraffe racing to, you know, wild pig chasing, football, <laughs> basketball, racing, whatever you've got on music. your mind. Basket weaving, music. Um, remember the debate we had about great songwriters, great musicians? Um, yeah, if, if the last hour of every week, we say no, it'll be the no politics hour. And we'll kind of begin decompressing, getting to a um, a friendlier and gentler mood heading into the weekend, uh, and that would be our contribution to that. It's not Friday afternoon, but we're not on the air Friday afternoon. It would be Friday afternoon as far as our radio show is concerned, but the last hour of the week, anything goes. Whatever you want to talk about, call in, discuss. We may um, have a topic up for debate, and like songwriter, I mean, with the calls lit up. When we started about great guitarists or singer songwriters versus great musicians, um, I mean, we try to stay focused on politics because we think it's important work, and we think these debates are consequential. Um, but for one hour every week, we could escape some of the um, some of the doldrums of politics, uh, some of the pressure of politics, and just you know 
is Bob Dylan crazy or not? I mean, I think there's an hour conversation to be had. I mean, we can answer, is he weird or not in two seconds? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, take he's weird. At all. Is he crazy? You know, and if he's crazy, what degree? Is he back crap crazy? I mean, I think we could have an hour conversation this Friday at nine about, is Bob Dylan crazy or not? Let's go to the phone. Jim in Florence. Hello, Jim. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, guys. So whether or not Bob Dylan is crazy might be up for discussion, but he definitely can't sing. <laughs> True. But uh, so for clarity's sake, I've already paid off my loan, student loan several years ago. Um, but based on your arguments, Ken, about the Duke Power case, it seems like I was forced into a situation where um, the government created an environment where I had to go to college. And the only way to pay for that was with loans. So how is that any different than the 94% of debt, um, PPP loan debt that was forgiven where the government created a situation um, where business owners had to take these loans out to survive? Um, so, but then also, Ken, what happens to Charleston, Columbia, Clemson, Athens, Tuscaloosa, Lawrence, Hartsville, and Myrtle Beach, for that matter, when we cut off these student loans? These student loans have created false economies, thousands of false economies throughout this country. Um, a lot of people in roundabout ways have gotten rich off these student loans, whether it be landlords, bar and restaurant owners, hoteliers, um, retailers, local governments through uh, tax revenues. When you think about plumbers and electricians who not only service these colleges, but service the ever-booming residential population surrounding these colleges. Uh, think about the construction companies with lucrative contracts and building houses and building dormitories and all these different things. Can we, I agree, completely agree that we got to stop the madness when it comes to student loans. But I do think it's, we have to be prepared if we just cut it off that it's going to hurt a lot of people, including working class people, if we cut that that free flow of money off. So thank you, Tim. Thank you, Jim. That's an interesting look at it. And really and truly, he said what Rev is arguing, that the there was an economy created not based or predicated on fact or truism, but, or but Rev, market uh, bingo. I mean, when a game warden has to go get a college degree to be a game warden, you, you got to kind of shake your head and say, what's going on here? But, I mean, in typical American fashion, we didn't. You know, the parent of the kid said, hey, you got to go get that degree if you want to be a game warden. Why? Well, I don't know. They said you did. I mean, they said you did. That's the condition of conformity aspect that I talk a lot about. So, so I mean, that's the point Rev tries to make. The government convinced me that for my kid to be successful in life, he had to go get a college degree. And not only that, they built an economy based on overvaluing that degree. There is no value at all and that game warden having a degree in political science. None. But that was part of the criteria that had to be met. And then their influence then made these costs go so far sure. out of control sure. that well, it's I mean, impossible. But, but, Rev, if you are going to loan money, knowing that if the, if the borrower doesn't pay you back, the government will, why wouldn't you loan the money? No risk. And if you're selling the product, why wouldn't you increase the price of the product? I think colleges did exactly what colleges should have done. I think the colleges said, if these nuts are crazy enough to guarantee all the debt, let's increase the price because we have nothing to lose. College has gone up about 65 cent for every dollar of student debt we've accumulated in the past 30 or 40 years. I'm going to imagine that. 
their trajectories are about the same. I mean, once it's not dollar for dollar, but but for every dollar of student debt we have in America today, college has gone up an average of 65 cent per dollar. Uh, The only thing that has outpaced healthcare expense in America is the cost of higher education. Are we getting a better education? I mean, if you go to if you go to the University of South Carolina today, are you getting a better quality education than you did if you went to the '60s or '70s? I would argue you're probably getting an inferior quality of education. I mean, I think the proficiency scores show this. Um, and once again, if college is worth the value, why is so many detours in arrears when it comes to paying it back? In other words, if you've got a hundred thousand dollars in student debt. You should be making $300,000 a year and able to pay your money back. But roughly half, not quite half, but roughly half is in default deferment or some sort of delayed payment. I mean, most people haven't made a college payment since COVID hit. And and if the government didn't have the luxury of printing money, how would that look? Now, now here's what I say about these economies, these false economies that have been built around the ever-growing expense of higher education. Tough stuff. I'm sorry. My daughter lives in a house in Columbia that you've got to go outside to change your mind, and it's $1,000 a bedroom. Because the University of South Carolina nearly had 7,000 new freshmen enroll at USC this year. That they're all caught up in, we'll have 50,000 50, students, undergraduate students, before you know it. I mean, that, is that good? It doesn't matter. It's money. It's a clientele. It's a customer base. And these ancillary and cottage businesses that have been uh, built based upon the ever-growing number of kids who are going to college, um, education has to have radical reform, radically reform uh, education. You can't nip around the edges. Uh, I think radical reformation or radical reform would be, okay, I'm a conservative Republican. I think it's immoral to make somebody who didn't borrow the money, didn't get the education, subsidize the paying back of the person who did and does. I mean, I think for, for you to suggest that there's no morality part of that, and I think that's where Larry and I agree. I mean, Larry's argument is the money's been spent, dude. The government's already guaranteed the money. I mean, if you believe there's any altruism in government and they believe they made a mistake, so we're going to we're going to really adjust how we spend money based on this student debt program going south because we worry about the PPP program or we worry about some of these other unemployment programs or other entitlement programs. We learned a hard lesson there. I mean, it's obvious we let this get out of hand. We got to do better. There's no interest in any of that. And then you, the public, have not been served by any of these programs. And it goes back to what we began today's show with. Brett Baer had... Um, his name escapes me now. It's 48 years Senator Leahy. Uh, Pat Leahy, who's president pro tem of the, uh, of the U.S. Senate, uh, fourth in line for the presidency. You got president, vice president, Senate, uh, no, speaker of the House, and then president pro tem of the Senate. Uh, Pat Leahy is 80 years old, been in the Senate since 1970s, 48 years. He's written a book, um, and he talks about, you know, when the, when the debt ceiling issue came along. But he says this proudly. I mean, to be celebrated. He wants us to be as enthusiastic about this as he is. Leahy says that he and Mitch McConnell and Chuck Grassley, some of the old hands of Washington, I mean, all of them are a third as old as the country. Uh, between the four, they're older in the country. But it doesn't matter. I mean, they, you know, they're, they're the wise men of Washington. They know best. They're the ones to be trusted. Why would you trust 44, 80-year-old year, men to do what's right for the future of America? Think about that, the illogic of that. Four 80-year-old men in a room 
discussing what's best for America's future. The average life expectancy in America is 79.8. So these guys have outlived their warranty. <laughs> if you want to break it down to brass tacks, right? Yeah. Okay. But they're going to make decisions in the best interest of the future of America. The absurdity of that. But when they get together and, and, he, and he says this, and he says it like, yeah, Brett, you know, when, I, when, when we face this crisis, when we face this monumental moment in American history, whether or not to raise the debt ceiling, the four of us got together and did what was right for the Americans. No, you didn't. You never have. You never would. If you were doing right by the American people, we wouldn't be $30 trillion in debt. What, what those four men got in a room and discussed is, let's use health care. We did that this morning. So when, when there's a deal to be made on health care, and these um, men of such integrity and standing get together in one of their offices, and they converse, conversate about what is best for um, the country moving forward, when, when Grassley sits down, and I'm being hypothetical here, when Grassley sits down, he says, well, here's what the insurance companies think. And Leahy says, yeah, but I talked to the pharmaceutical companies, and here's what they think. The public is not considered in any of that debate. Do you really believe, go back to student debt, do you really believe when this scheme was concocted that we the people were seriously considered? I mean, do you really believe that? Do you believe for a second that when the powers to be got together and concocted a scheme that would end up with $1.78 trillion in student debt, we the people were considered. Did anybody around that table say, yeah, but what does this do to the working class? I mean, what does this honestly do to the mom and pops? Mom and pop doesn't have an office on K Street. Higher education lobbies government every day. I don't know how many lobbyists USC has. But they do. I don't know how many lobbyists Clemson has, but they do. Coastal Carolina, for instance. I mean, I don't know how many. They're, they're, and I, look, I'm not, I'm not blaming the universities. I mean, they were given a license to, to, to steal. Why not steal? I mean, who's in this for the good? No, we're in it for the benefit. And the benefit led to these false economies that have, you know, seen these areas around universities blow up. You got student housing complexes. You got restaurants and Starbucks. But they're all false. And the reason they're false is because there should be 4,500 freshmen at South Carolina instead of 7,000. Well, if there's 2,500 fewer, guess what? That's fewer coffee cups. That's fewer meals at Wendy's. That's fewer um, six packs of beer at the convenience store. That's not as many dorm rooms. That's fewer professors, fewer administrators. But what's going to change it? We the people. How do we the people get ourselves to a place where we're allowed to have a voice in some of these conversations? That's really the essential debate. We know what's happening. I mean, the majority of you have a suspicion about how we got here. Now, when I, I had the Griggs case and talk about the, um, the Duke Power Supreme Court decision and the 1964, I mean, I doubt the majority of you would go, okay, I knew that. I mean, I knew there was a, a case in the 1971 talking about disparate impact. Uh, adverse effects of criteria. I mean, I don't expect you to know that. I mean, that's kind of my job, right? I mean, my job is to dig a little deeper. But how many of you felt for a second that it made any sense to pay $25,000 a year for your kid to go to college? I spent a summer and a semester at Walford. I'll never forget, my dad sent me with a check. Walford's a private school. He sent me with a check. My dad didn't care me. I mean, imagine that. Now we tuck them in um, <laughs> and make sure they're okay. Um, he sent me with a check, I think it was $795 for a semester. What is a semester at Walford now? I don't know. I don't have any idea. 
But what I'd not love for somebody to tell me that. I mean, I carried a check with me for $795. I got a little bit of help on football. I mean, back in the day, they didn't get full scholarships unless you were real good, and I wasn't real good. So I got a little bit of expenses paid uh, because of my football prowess. Um, but but what does, seriously, what does it cost to go to Walford or Furman today? I mean, the USC is a public institution, right? Clemson's a public institution, publicly funded, um, available to the public. But Walford and Furman are private schools. What you know, Somebody out there listening knows. They've got a kid or went to Walford. What is a semester at Walford today? I'd love to know that because in 1982, it was $795, and that was all in. And my dad moaned and complained, that's nearly a 1000 damn dollars for half a year? I mean, that's not the entire year. I got to write another check for $795 for the second half of the year? What are you looking at, Freehold? You ready? Yeah. Uh, 47000 full tuition. See, that's absurd. $50,000 to go to. I mean, that, the absurdity of that. Let's go to the phone. Then we'll take our break. Mark in Branchville listening to WTQS. Hi, Mark. Uh, good morning, guys. Ken, always a great job. Um, yeah, I'm one of those, um, I hate to say pissed off parents, but yeah, when I left Clemson, the birth, I, I got paid in full and it was like for four years at Clemson, I think it was a little over, not quite 20. And my take, my daughter, when I sent my daughter there, it was, it was right at 20 a semester or year rather. And you know, when she left, all her bills are paid in full and you know, who's going to help me pay, give me the money back. And I worked hard for me and my wife I had to sacrifice to put these kids to both of my girls through college. And then, you know, now they're just going to forgive it. I mean, that's one. I mean, if, if people aren't pissed about that, they don't understand anything. But they're stealing from you, Mark. I mean, they, they, we've legalized counterfeiting. I mean, I hope I've convinced you that our, our economy is predicated on legalized counterfeiting of money. We couldn't run the government without legalized counterfeiting. Now they've legalized theft. I mean, one man well, in America decided that you owe money for an education you didn't get and money you didn't borrow. One man in this country is going to make that decision and sign a declaration in the law now to be challenged in the courts, and who knows how the courts rule. But, I mean, imagine the audacity and arrogance of a government that believes they can do that to you. Well, and they, they do, they're doing it unprecedentedly. And, and, they, and, well, you know, $100 bill is only a loan to the government. I mean, it's not worth any more than that. You know, it's just a loan to the government. And that's one thing they got the money on us, and we can't do anything about it. But we, if we, if the general public is not upset about this, it's only because they're thinking selfishly. Because look, well, my child got 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 it forgiven. Well, that's great, I guess. But how about me? I mean, I suffered through two kids going to college, and you know, worked my butt off. And I'm proud to say that they came, they left college, you know, and not owing a penny. Now, a lot of their friends aren't like that. I mean, I, I know a lot of their friends aren't like that. But I'm very proud of that situation too, you know. But I worked my ass off for it. Good deal. Thank you for the call. But now, but, but let's go back to the point. I mean, Mark's hitting it from the angle that I hit it from. It's kind of the morality of it. Um, you know, I've worked hard. Um, I mean, I'll say it on the record. Uh, up until now, my daughter has no student debt. I don't know what the future holds. I don't have any idea. They may throw me off the radio Friday. I think the owners are coming to town. They may throw me off the radio Friday, and I don't have enough money to do it. I got no idea how that works itself out. Um, so I don't know what the future holds, and I'll never say and the last thing I'll ever do is borrow money for my daughter to go to college because I don't know what I'll end up doing two years from now. I have no idea what the world looks like a year from now, a year and a half uh, from now. But but the point Rev's trying to make and the point my, uh, Jim made is these false economies. They, they almost leave you with no choice. They, they, they build an economy that most employees have been convinced this, this job requires a college degree, and it doesn't. 
It simply does not. How many jobs out there require a college degree that really do require a college degree? I don't want to drive on a bridge that hadn't been designed by an educated engineer. Right? I mean, I'll agree with that. I don't want to have heart surgery done on me by anybody other than someone who's graduated from medical school, preferably a, a really good medical school. I don't want to be represented in court by a lawyer who didn't go to law school, unless his name is Abraham Lincoln. Um, you, you see where I'm headed. I mean, I'm not saying that college education needs to go away. There is value to college education, that there's a practicality to college education. There is a reason we need good institutions of higher learning and quality professors leading those good institutions of higher learning. But the, the reality is we've probably got three or four million people too many going to college. But the model doesn't work if we don't have those three or four million people going to college. It has economic impacts because, once again, to Rev's point, they built these false economies. And they gave me no choice but to participate. Take a break. Back in just a few minutes. i got a few rich, educated friends. Walford Annual costs $67,000 a year. Wow. Walford Annual costs $67,000. they got a kid there now. Wow. Um, that's all I'll leave it there now. He goes on to talk about scholarship, and she better keep her scholarship. Anyway, uh, that, that's for that's not for public <laughs> edification, but that's his number. Mm. Uh, Freehold said it's somewhere over forty grand. So let's, uh, for argument's sake, let's say it's fifty grand a year. Um, wow, wow. Let's go to the phone, David in Florence. Good morning, David. Hey, good morning. I guess you have to go drive all the way to Texas, Canada, to pick up a truckload of Coors beer to pay for school these days. That's crazy, isn't it? What was our $80,000 back then? Uh, Ken, you you mentioned uh, Road Less Travel. That's a good George Strait song. You may want to play that on Friday. Um, You know, college is an industry that produces Democrats. And ask yourself these questions. Where is your college football merchandise made at? And where is it shipped to? And where are all these college textbooks? I don't know. Do they still use textbooks? But back in the day, where were they published at? And I always get back to Jerry the Nadler. Uh, I'm looking at that New York City um, 12th district last night. And, Ken, did you know that there are 594,000 college students in New York City? And where are your publishing headquarters? Where are these ports? that just make money off of global shipping? Where is your global financial uh, headquarters at? Uh, a lot of this is New York City. So um, good news is the Bronx beat the Queens last night, I guess, 4-2. to two. That was good for the Braves. So y'all pay attention. We got the Aaron Judge and uh, Pete Alonzo show. That was last night. But just New York City is one of the Democrats' power base. So always follow the money, always follow the power base. Have a good day. Thank you, David. I mean, one of the demos is surprising. Mean, it doesn't surprise me. I guess I should have known this. But, but when I began reading polling, or I began reading polling, and I'm trying to figure out, I mean, Robert talks a lot about cross tabs. And I remember several weeks ago, I said, what do you mean cross tabs? It's, it's, it's the minutiae. I mean, it, it's what's inside of there. I mean, the samples and, you know, um, where are they? In, in other words, are they calling precincts that voted against Trump? Are they calling more, you know, uh, precincts with a higher suburban population? I mean, there's a way to get a result. And you can honestly say that's not a rig poll, but it kind of is. It's kind of um, CBS News needs to poll to say Trump's a drag. 
So what do you call? You call Republican voters who lived in the precincts that Trump had issues. You don't call rural America because they're not going to tell you Trump's a drag. They're going to be excited about Trump. So that is kind of, um, I mean, is it rigging the poll? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's at least fixing it. <laughs> To have a certain leading the witness. Well, I mean, a sure, bit. Yeah. that's a better way to say it. It's, it's leading the witness into a um, a certain argument or certain a certain debate. I want to reiterate. I'm not saying do away with college education. I mean, I think that's an absurd. I mean, Jefferson was a very influential person in believing. I mean, I can't be a Jeffersonian be anti-education, and I'm certainly not anti-education. I'm I'm not anti, you know, people borrowing money to go to college. I'm very opposed to the government guaranteeing it. Let the bank make that decision. Here, here's the answer, and the universities don't want any part of this. The university must have skin in the game. I mean, if the university has skin in the game, they may do away with some of these ridiculous programs they have. They may not let a marginal kid come in or not. Well, I mean, that's unfair to the kid. Well, you know, the world ain't fair. But the fair comes in October. We look around, Rev, and politics has decided in the last 30 or 40 years that if somebody's had their feelings hurt, if somebody feels they've been mistreated, if somebody feels offended, if somebody feels like they didn't get a fair shake, their feelings are good enough for us to adopt a government program. Y- your feelings don't mean anything. What are the facts? What well, we confuse facts and feelings so often in this country, and, and, and if America collectively feels that this is unfair, we turn to the government. We should turn to the facts. What do the facts say? You know what the facts say? Hardworking, smart people outperform dumb ones who don't. And there ain't a damn thing you can do about that. The government doesn't have enough money to create a program to fix that. But they've tried, and they've tried, and they've tried, and they've tried. And in the American economy, there is nothing wrong with having winners and having losers. That is called the animal spirits of the private sector. And, you know, the more we distort that, the, the more we impede the progress of those animal spirits, um, the more deformed and debilitated our economy becomes in the name of government programs. So the government woke up one day, I guess today or yesterday, and decided that it's not fair for these kids to owe this money. You enabled the kids. You're responsible. I mean, the government is clearly on the hook for why these kids owe all this money. So the government created the problem. And now they're spending your tax dollars and addressing the problem and getting nothing in trade from the university. What does the university have to lose in any of this? I mean, the university has got their money. You may have finished with a degree. You may not have finished with a degree. How many universities have refunded money? I mean, I don't know about it. And when you say, well, they're not there to indoctrinate, my, my daughter's a, a pretty shrewd and smart 18-year-old. You know what she told me early on? And your kids have told you the same thing. Mm-hmm. Dad, if I tell my professor I'm buying a Tesla and voting for Biden, he'll give me A's. If I tell him I like four-wheelers and Trump, I need to find another professor. Oh, but that's just kind of the where, that's that's where we've gotten. And going back to the polling, the number of college, the, the college-educated voter under the age of 30 is as Democrat as the African-American voter. We talk about the, the, the African-American vote. 90% of African-Americans vote for the Democrat. It's about the same number with college-educated voters under the age of 30. Now, it changes a bit after 30 because I think you realize how stupid it is and how absurd it is to vote 
consistently for liberal policies. Once you make a little money, have a job, raise a family, own a home, try to make a better way, you look back and say, the government ain't never been my friend. I mean, the government's made my life more difficult and complicated. But you leave that college campuses, uh, college campus with some sort of, um, I don't know, idealism. You have an idealistic worldview, and that professor's told you that, you know, the world is unfair. And when people get their feelings hurt, the government is supposed to come to the rescue. That's an absurd way of doing things. But it's kind of what you get when you get Democrat leadership. And let's be honest, a lot of Republicans have bought into some of this narrative. Let's go to the phone. Here is Angela in Pamplico. Hi, Angela. Hey. So I've got a couple of things on that. Um, when I was at um, the barbecue that Jeff Duncan did Monday night in Anderson, Ellen Weaver, which is going to be our next state superintendent um, of education, she was on stage, you know, giving her little speech and the lady across from me was, you know, jibber jabber and, you know, if she gets her master's, da 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 and I said, Number one, she's gonna get her masters. I know for a fact personally that she's working her butt off to get her masters. She said, What is she doing? Buying it? And I said, Can you tell me what a master's degree is other than a piece of paper? Because nobody that I know that has a master's has been able to tell me that. Everybody says that they get more knowledge okay well you get more knowledge on the job training too i personally have been able to um or not been able to apply for jobs that i was over qualified for in my 25 years of career because i didn't have a bachelor's degree i couldn't even apply for the job because i didn't have a bachelor's degree makes no sense i was overqualified with experience um not to mention my ex-husband when they broke ground at nanya plastics in lake city he was one of the very first construction workers on site building that plant he was one of the very first people hired on to maintenance when the plant got up and running and they started hiring people because he knew what he was doing he helped build the plant um, he got as far up as he could, which was really nothing, um, no position, you know, no title. And this 22-year-old kid from Clemson University with a golf management degree came in that had never stepped foot in a manufacturing plant before or a construction site in his life came in to be his manager because he had a college degree in golf management. Now tell me how that makes sense. And that's where we've gotten. My daughter's in college because she wants to be a veterinarian. You cannot be a veterinarian without a college degree. Um, otherwise, I would, not, I, I would not want her to be in college, but that's been her goal since she was nine years old. And so she's there, but I mean, really, what I've got lots of friends that's got college degrees, came out of college and couldn't get a job. So they're well, doing stuff that they don't even have a college degree for. Yeah. Thank you for the call. Appreciate that. Um, it, kind of an interesting, I believe the reason, I, I want to use Rev for this as an example. I mean, you shoot me straight. Mm -hmm. 
Your two boys graduated from University of South Carolina. Yes. Um, you doubt whether they really needed that degree. They've got they've got jobs. Mm-hmm. Do you believe their jobs? Um, you, do you believe the jobs they're doing now they could do without a college degree? I, I like to. <laughs> what a question! But I mean, you didn't yes. want your kids to fall yes, through the cracks, of course. right? Yep. We we build an economy that parents are concerned. Parents know it's insane. But, but I'm insane. not saying I don't think their degrees are worth No, no, not I'm not, worth. I would never say that. Here's the argument, I, not the argument, here's the talk I had with my daughter. I said, honey, I will do everything within my power to lead you to a pathway of success. There's nothing I want more for you than to be successful. Financially, um, I want you to be secure. Uh, I want you to be independent. I want you to be kind and gracious and decent and humble, all these things. Um, but I'm not sending you to Carolina just to be a Gamecock. I'm not sending you to Carolina to get a degree that that may or may not prepare you to make some money one day and be uh, a value to an enterprise in the private sector. I'm just not going to do that. Let's think about this thing. Well, I mean, the Darlamore School of Business uh, was a highly regarded business school. The Darlamore School of International Business is as good as it gets. I mean, it's as highly ranked as any institution in the world. That's the point I'm making. I'm not saying my daughter's wasting her time by going to Carolina, but if my daughter were going to Carolina to get a degree in golf management with no intent to ever go in golf management, the absurdity of that. Uh, Greek literature, uh, Shakespearean theater, uh, basket weaving 101. I don't know how many programs are valuable or not. But, but there's some, once again, I, I'm not, this is not about college needs to go away. College needs to be adjusted. College was intended to make our population, I mean, it was a little bit elitist. I mean, Jefferson believed that a enlightened and well-rounded population led to a better country. Philosophically, I'm with him. I don't think there's any question about that. But the next thing you know, the university system becomes a, a churn out a graduate kind of thing. In other words, um, how many dollars are with that kid? Uh, what is the tuition? How much did we collect out of state, in state, uh, grants, and, and you know what I mean, bail, bail grants and all these other, it became an industry. And the industry was not predicated on becoming enlightened and well-rounded, but, but how do we build another dorm with a, climb, with a rock climbing wall? How, how, do we, how do we pay the administration? How do we hire these um, three or four other professors? Uh, it's There's just, also an industry where market forces do not apply. And, and They're that, so skewed. How many times have I said this? The public sector has been masterful. I'm envious. I'm jealous of this. The public sector has been masterful in insulating itself from market forces. Name a government agency. Name a bureaucratic enterprise. Name an affiliated or associated um, whatever with the federal government. Where do the market forces apply? Crickets. There, there are none. And, and that's my great beef, whether it's student debt, higher education, whether it's um, you know the Department of Justice or the FBI. We live in the real world. You, I, and most of our listeners cannot escape the market realities. We can hide. We can run. I've done it. I mean, I see that train coming, but I don't want to deal with it right now. So I go borrow a little more money. You know, I sign another note. I, I know I'm done because I know the market will eventually figure me out, figure the business out, figure the endeavor out, figure the project out, that there's no escaping it. I can delay the inevitable. But I can't wait it out forever. The market forces will eventually 
identify and make me pay for the mistake I made as a business person. Give me an example of a bureaucratic agency held accountable to any of the market forces that nearly everyone listening to my voice has to deal with. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Uh, I'm enjoying your show as always, but uh, I got I got something that's a little bit off topic, and then I'd like to come back and make my usual rant about what's going on. But uh, you y'all are talking about uh, Dylan and all of those things, and whether he was a good performer or not. The thing was that uh, he he wrote some really good tunes and some really good lyrics. And uh, they were beyond lyrics, some of them. Uh, but uh, somebody like Jimi Hendrix could make uh, all along the Watchtower work, and uh, and Joan Baez and uh, Johnny Cash tried to teach him how to to sing, and at least uh, in some ways improve his voice. With uh, and uh, you didn't even mention Lay Lady Lay or uh, the Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat. I I just like to hear a, a few licks from that uh, i know that's craziness but you don't have to i don't want you to be off the air i'm afraid uh, they might might put you off the air if you play <laughs> too many of those teens from dylan but uh i uh on the education thing i cannot figure out for the life of me why algebra and trigonometry books cost so much and why a calculus book costs hundreds of dollars uh, I, I I don't think uh, anything's much changed about calculus in the last hundred years, and the notation uh, has changed a, a little bit. But uh, if uh, if you got a hole in the graph, the rocket pro- probably blew up, and I said it or it stopped working, or it was uh, trans trans uh, it, it was uh, beamed up by aliens. But whatever the situation, the rocket didn't work. But uh, I think the the shame is they take our labors and our, our endeavors and waste them. They waste them. That was one of the things I hated about that. People, people paid with their lives and their bodies to, uh, to uh, accomplish missions, impossible missions. And uh, they blew it up in the Afghanistan withdrawal. I don't know. I don't understand that kind of waste. Thank you, sir, Mike. Appreciate that. That's kind of a um, yeah, from Dylan to Afghanistan. That there's a um, there's a lot of rant involved in that. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Hadn't heard from anybody about whether or not we should take the last hour of the week, not the day, that last hour of the week, and anything but politics for an hour. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Couple of callers held on during the break. Let's be respectful of their time and go to the phone. Benji in Latta. Good morning, Benji. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Uh, yeah, sorry that the uh, segment ran so long, but I, I think it's a very important topic that uh, you know it affects uh, millions of Americans across the country. But uh, I agree with you, Ken. Um, you know, why do you need a four year degree to be a game warden or be a landscaper? I, I think that is a, a, a you know, a Ponzi scheme or a racket to some degree, like you've been uh, consistently uh, talking about over the, over the months. But uh, I think there could be a solution, uh, just in my humble opinion, to solving the, the uh, loan crisis for education, and it wouldn't require even touching the universities. I think that uh, as parents and 
as people of blue-collar jobs, they, it would be best to start marketing blue-collar jobs more to people for the workforce that are up and coming because, you know, you know, you can think about how much does an HVAC technician make or an electrician or a plumber or a welder. Uh, those are very good-paying jobs that require uh, little to no four-year degrees or on-the-job training or an apprenticeship or some sort of uh, vocational training that more times than most, uh, the the job that you're applying for may even send you for and even train you to do it. Uh, so I think that one one of the best things we could be doing for the people who are up and coming in the workforce is to give them those options, to show them that, hey, you can be successful in life and not have $100,000 in debt and go out and make good money, not be in debt, and then we just circumnavigate and cut out those colleges altogether. And then on the flip side of that, if these state-controlled universities try to come to legislation and say, hey, our numbers are down and we need more money, well, hopefully we have the right people in office that will just say, no, we're not going to give you more money to uh, to try to push up your rates and your tuition for these students. Uh, just just my two cents on the topic. Well, well, well thought out. Well explained. Thank you well, for the call. Appreciate you listening over there. Too much sense. Um, yeah, a lot of sense there. The um, You know, I believe this. I believe that the country – needs educated people i think knowing some greek literatures i think that matters a little bit i mean I, you know i'm kind of a weirdo here i think that um knowing a little bit of shakespeare coming from somebody who knows a little bit of dylan well i mean i mean I'm, I'm just saying that maybe i'm an oddity i mean maybe i'm weird here the reason i find dylan and springsteen interesting is the thoughtfulness behind their lyrics mm-hmm. that they're talking about the world they've experienced uh, the way they see it now obviously they do it in a very poetic and word smithy kind of way, um, a way that very few people could ever express themselves. Um, there's a dirty wind blowing. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, Dylan, I mean, I read some Dylan lyrics last night. I'm like, whoa, I mean, what? That had to be psychedelic. I mean, that, that's real psychedelic. But but I want to I say again, I mean, I grew up in a town with no stoplight. I am a, by, by, by practical definition, I'm a simple man. But I'm fairly complicated in the pursuit of knowledge, I want to know more. I want to understand more. I don't want to be limited. I don't want people to look at me and say, well, they grew up in a town with no stoplight. What do you expect? So maybe maybe I'm odd. I mean, maybe I'm different here. But but I want to know a little Shakespeare. I want to know a little Greek mythology. I want to know a little bit about New York City. I want to know a little bit about the West Coast. I want to know about the world around me. But it doesn't need to cost me a hundred grand. You see where I'm headed? I mean, I think going to college is a benefit. I mean, I think it makes you a better person to have a, be forced to do your own laundry and to grow up and mature in a certain way. That's the one thing I've noticed about my daughter. I mean, nobody tells her to get up and go to school. There, there's a responsibility that goes along with her setting an alarm clock, knowing when to leave and come home the night before. So, so I do think there's an independence factor and a maturity factor there, but it's not worth a hundred grand. It's just not. I think the cost associated with the experience has become so unbelievably disproportional. But I don't believe we should shut down every liberal arts program in America today. I think there's great value. I think conservatives need to be um, understanding of some of these things that they find a little bit silly and nuanced. Um, because I think it makes us a better person. And how do we make a better country? I mean, if we've got serious, I don't want to say educated, if you've got serious, smart people, you're bound to have a better nation than if you have unserious, not-so-smart people. So every chance to self-educate, I think we should take advantage of. See, I believe that we 
we kind of, I don't know, Rev, we defer to the formal education process as a way to make ourselves smarter. I mean, I self-educate. I mean, I'm a college dropout from a town with no stoplight. Sound like a campaign speech because it was for a long time. Um, but I have refused to accept that failure in my academic life as a limit to my understanding of the world around me. I have self-educated myself. I have read more about the world than you care to know. I have plundered and, and asked questions. And I mean, my wife will take it a minute. Uh, she is not nosy, but it's very inquisitive. You know, wh- where are you from? What do you do? Uh, what do they do? What do you do there? Why do you do that? Why don't y'all do it there? What made you want to go to the West Coast? Uh, you know, what kind of widget do y'all make? That company's been around how long? And then you go home and you kind of like, you know, you okay, that's kind of an interesting story and an interesting person. I've learned so much from my fellow man and the experiences they've had in their lives. I've learned, you know, formal education is of value. I mean, if you're going to build a bridge, I don't want you watching YouTube, right? If you're going to do heart surgery, I, I don't want you um, at a Google, like, like how to do heart surgery. Um, no, not at all. If you're representing someone in a very serious legal matter, um, what to do in case I get charged with murder? <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, but, but I think we can self-educate ourselves. And I think we've dumbed down society to a point of we know uh, every character of Seinfeld and Friends and you know, the Big Bang. You know, what's the guy in the Big Bang Theory? The Sheldon. Really, yeah, Sheldon and Jerry. And uh, I mean, we know everything there is to know about that. But, but I don't, and that's entertainment and it's fine to be entertained, but I think we have an obligation to ourselves to become more aware and understanding of the world around us. Does that make sense? And I don't need a college professor doing that for me. I mean, there, there's information, there are books everywhere. Get your hand on a book. And I'm not talking about who's sleeping with who. And I'm not talking about those romance novels or soap opera sorts of, of novels. I'm talking about someone with, with some substance. There's nothing wrong with having fun. There's nothing wrong with winding down. There's nothing wrong with the last thing I want to do at a tailgate when I'm taking a drink with my fellow Gamecock fans, same thing as you fellow Clemson fans, the last thing I want to do is break down political philosophy. But we all have times in our lives that aren't spoken for. We find things, we, we find ourselves with time on our hands to do what we choose to do. And I think Americans need to make a more concerted effort at understanding the world around them and why it exists. I'll go back to the story. Here's the busy head syndrome. And once again, maybe I'm the oddity here. Maybe most of you say, man, I don't want to live that weird life. So one day when I find out a game warden has to have a college degree, that's not good enough for me. What do you mean a game warden has to have a college degree? That makes no sense. It doesn't pass the common sense test. Why the hell is a game warden? There I'm talking to myself. Why the hell is a game warden have to have a college degree? That makes no sense. And so, so you plunder around, you explore a little bit, and then you find out that Griggs and Duke Power had a lawsuit that the Supreme Court ruled on in 1971 that basically said the Civil Rights Act of 1964, in fact, Title VII in the Civil Rights legislation, said that the Duke Energy, Duke Power at the time, was a uh, in breach of the Civil Rights legislation uh, because they had a rule that required employees who were trying to transfer be promoted within that company, um, we're being forced to take an intelligence test. How many people would go on that journey? Once again, I might be the weirdo, but if that's weird, we need more weirdos. We need more people 
studying about the world around them than worried about what time you know uh the big bang comes on or i mean i under let's get i'm not chastising anybody for being entertained i mean i love entertainment as much as anybody i mean i've got this thing with pranks on youtube i love to watch pranks because i think people in their natural state are the funniest you know the the the, the um the, the conceived humor the 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 sitcom that doesn't do much for me because that's people who are supposed to be funny they're paid to be funny they're paid to be actors i like to watch real people in real situations you know be pranked about it i mean that's just humor i mean i find that so interesting about the human experience but but and i'll conclude and then we'll go to the phone the point i'm trying to make is there's a formal education that an engineer has to have to build a bridge there's a formal education that a doctor has to have to do heart surgery there's a formal education that an attorney needs to to represent somebody in a serious legal matter but the world is, is is yours. I mean, there's an abundance of information with with the internet. There are. I mean, it's immediate. I mean, the immediacy and our ability to gain information and knowledge. Now, once again, you got to decipher what's true, what's not true, what's to be trusted, what's not to be trusted. Um, you, you got to go into this world understanding that certain people have certain objectives and agendas, and you kind of you calculate that, you self account that. But you're always educating yourself. You're always making yourself more aware of the world around us. And if we want a better world, we got to be more aware of it. If we're oblivious to it, then then how do we make it better? Let's go to the phone. Steve and Florence. Good morning, Steve. Good hey, morning, guys. I'm going off of your, your doctor and lawyer thing. What's the, what's the difference between me and a college student that graduated? If I studied all the material, I know like the back of my hand, would stop me from being an intern at a hospital where you're learning that hands-on experience in the last phase of your medical practice. Same thing with the lawyer. If I knew all the material, went and passed the bar, I mean, just because I didn't go to a school, but I know the law, like I, I think school is kind of pointless if you have the passion to go learn it yourself. And to touch on your YouTube thing, I got my master's degree in YouTube of how to, you know, fix things that I don't know how it works. But most of those prank videos, about 99% of them are fake. And I'll take it off. Yeah, but the 1% that aren't are hilarious. I mean, I've, I've yeah. You can that, spot the difference. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know the difference. I mean, it, it's, I don't, I'm not saying I don't, I, have I ever been pranked on a prank? Of course I have. I mean, if you watch as many as I do, and my kids kind of laugh at it. Um, he's watching that prank stuff, man. You know what he's doing. He's, he's, watching that he's prank. over there by himself yeah. in the room laughing. We yeah. know what he's watching. Hey, come here a minute. I don't want to come there, man. I don't want to watch that prank. I don't believe it. I think it's fake. Uh, and like Steve said, 99%, ah, 90% are fake, but some of the, uh, some of them are pretty real and funny, hilarious. Um, but, but no, I didn't say that you, that you had to have somebody with a law degree. I mean, you can represent yourself in a trial. I mean, if you go to trial for murder, I mean, you don't have to have a lawyer. You can have your brother-in-law represent you. I don't feel comfortable doing that. So, so there are, I mean, as extreme as I can be, I still want heart surgery. I don't want my heart worked on by somebody who watched a bunch of YouTube videos. I want my heart worked on by someone who has a sheepskin hanging on a wall, certifying them as a medical doctor in cardiology or whatever it is. I mean, you're fixing a bone. I want a pediatric or some kind of surgeon, not pediatric orthopedic surgeon. And if you're going to fix a bone of mine, uh, I don't want somebody on. Steve is making a point. I mean, 
they're self-taught this and self-taught that. And, and I'm like, Steve, I have, I've learned how to fix a lot of different things around my house. I thought I knew how to do this, but the YouTube video showed me a, a better way and a different way and a, and a more efficient, effective way. You know, when we, when we talk about the situation with higher education and here, I think it feeds into a kind of a macro narrative that we talked a lot about really extensively on this show, probably more about this than we have anything. And that is the skepticism toward government. So you mean to tell me, I mean, I don't listen to ARD. I don't watch CNN. I don't watch Fox. Uh, I think Sheldon is funny and I'm watching you too, but you mean to tell me that today the president of the United States is going to sign into law an executive action that forgives those who borrowed money to get an education, transfer that debt to those who didn't borrow the money and didn't get the education. I mean, in essence, so we talk about overall trust in government, right? How do you trust a government willing to do that? And if you don't believe the government's been bought and sold, the NAACP is arguing that that's nowhere near enough. The average African-American owes 52. I mean, they're putting it out there. It's not like, hey, can we meet tomorrow at 4 o'clock in your office? I want to tell you where we stand. The NAACP sent out a tweet, and this is not racial, so stop saying it is. The NAACP sent out a tweet saying that they were there for Biden when America's democracy needed preserving protecting from Donald Trump. And we did what we always do. We voted 90% Democrat. And now the Democrats are going to pay off $10,000 worth of student debt when African-Americans owe an average of $52,000. That is for public edification. The audacity and arrogance are out of touch or just the acceptance of where we are. Maybe that's a better word. I mean, to me, it's arrogant and audacious. To them, it may be, you know, just the way we do business. We're going to publicly embarrass you, Joe Biden, because we helped you win an election, and damn it, you're not doing right by us. I mean, that's the role of government, as the NAAC perceives it, right? I mean, how else can you interpret right. that? I mean, the NAACP expects government to basically, you know, pay them back. We did for you. It's time for you to do back for us. But, but once again, from where I sit, and I don't sit where everybody else does, but for where I sit, how can you? have faith in a government whose chief executive officer is going to sign into law legislation or executive order that says those of you who borrowed money to get that education don't owe that debt anymore. He's not forgiving the debt, guys. He's forgiving the borrower. The money doesn't go away. I mean, Larry's right. The money's been spent. I mean, the money's on the books. It's not going away. But Joe Biden is going to forgive somebody for borrowing money to give an education or to get an education, transfer that liability, transfer that debt to someone who didn't go to college and didn't get that education. That should disqualify a person from ever holding political office again. That's more criminal than anything Trump may or may not have done. That's more criminal than anything Bill Clinton or Hillary Clinton. I mean, to, to we've legalized counterfeiting of money, right? I mean, people would go to prison for printing money they don't have and trying to spend it. The government has done that more than anybody in the history of mankind. And we've endorsed it. I get it. I mean, it's the Fed. You know, maybe we need to, uh, you know, I, I got friends of mine. Ah, maybe we need to slow down a bit. I don't know, man. It's real complicated. Real complicated. You know, you watch CNBC? I mean, CNBC said so. I don't give a damn what CNBC is. They're a propaganda arm. I mean, that's all they are. Who cares what CNBC says? You're counterfeiting money. You're printing money 
you're creating debt that you just cannot pay back in a, in a million and a hundred million years. So now that's not enough. We're legalizing theft. We're stealing from people who didn't go to college, who didn't borrow the money, and we're making life better for those that did. How can you ever vote for someone who believes that is American? Take a break. Back in a minute. 843 is our number. Let's go to the phone. A couple of callers are there. Here's Ron in Florence. Morning, Ron. Hey, I'm calling because uh, this that giving away the education like that, they're going to just pay for it, is a slap in the face to me. When I was in college, I, I was uh, really poor as a kid, and I didn't have anything. I lived in substandard housing. I lived in a shack behind a guy's house. I painted I mowed grass, I roofed, I did whatever it took to make my money to make enough to get myself through college, because that's what I had to do. And being poor, I did get some grants, so they did help me out a little bit. But I tried so hard to get through college, and no one helped me, and I wanted it. Giving people stuff, it's like you give that kid a brand new car when he graduates, doesn't appreciate it as much as if he bought it himself. So... I work so hard for it, and to give it away really burns me. Then my, and if you look at my wife, her mother was a nurse. So she worked night shift because it paid more. She worked on a criminally or on a ill, uh, like terminally ill ward because it paid more, and she would do double shifts. Her dad had her, his own car uh, mechanic shop, and he would actually got a job at the post office so he could put his daughter through college. So those people worked themselves to death to make sure they were taken care of, and now we're just going to give it to them. They're not going to appreciate it if you don't if you don't have a little skin in the game, you don't appreciate it. Is what I'm looking at. Thank you, sir. Good personal story and I know many 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 people in your shoes who feel like they're being treated completely and totally unfairly by the government that they help fund. I mean, I mean, once again, guys, we can debate a lot of things about American politics. I mean, Jeff and I had a respectful disagreement yesterday about the Census Bureau. Um, you know, bringing I mean, you, you always argue from your side of the debate. I mean, you know, if I'm going to argue, I'm going to highlight the points that, that I believe lend most credence to the argument I'm trying to make. I'm not going to be dismissive of someone who has a different opinion or an alternate view. I mean, I think we need more of that. But I don't know how you find another side of this. I mean, I understand the part that Rev makes. Rev and Larry make a similar point. You know, I feel like I was coerced into believing I had to do this for my kid. Uh, I didn't want to do it. I, you know, Rev knows that college is too expensive. He knows mm-hmm. that it's a disproportional proposition, right? That's right? I mean, you know that what your kids got for spending the money that, that you know, the, the debt you created and then the 44 million Americans. I mean, you know, it ain't like there's two or three of you. There's 44 million Americans who owe $1.72 trillion. I mean, other than mortgage debt, this is the biggest chunk of debt that Americans have um, have created. It's bigger than car debt. It's bigger than credit card debt. It's bigger than home equity debt. Other than mortgages, collective mortgages in America are big. It's $1.7 trillion um, owed by 44 million Americans. Um, But a lot of adults, parents, believe that they had no choice. That this this economic reality has been created where if my kid doesn't get a degree, they're going to be at a competitive disadvantage, and I can't let that happen. I mean, I can't send my child out in the world. The last thing I do or don't do for them being help them get educated. I just can't do that. I love them too much. I don't want them to fall through the cracks and me be the reason. And, it, you know, five grand, 
10 grand, 15 grand, that's a fair proposition. But all of a sudden, the average student debt's 50 grand. There's a certain percentage over 100 grand. I mean, we've had people come to the studio a little bit embarrassed. I never called their name, but they tell us because we built somewhat of a um, respect of theirs. And they'll say, um, you know, my, my daughter owes 180,000. You know, my son in law owes 210,000. Uh, they, they got these great degrees and great, you know, and it'll maybe eventually pay dividends or not. But, but, you know, the false economy argument is the argument I'm trying to make. What we've allowed the government to once again create a false economy when they realize that they've enabled the creating of this false economy, they're going to force people who didn't participate in this false economy to be held accountable. And that's just un American, guys, that there's something wrong about that. That's not up for debate. There's no way to argue about whether or not I should be responsible for an education I didn't get and money I didn't borrow, period. Now, you can't twist that or turn that any other way. Let's go to the phone. Bert in Florence. Hello, Bert. Good morning. I, I got three subjects for you, so, so don't end me too quick. One, I just want to say I've done the representing yourself and being your own lawyer in court. I was perfectly correct, had everything dotted correctly. They had to even decide in my favor, but the judge visibly hated me because I'm not a lawyer. So I don't recommend doing that, but even when you got your stuff right and they have to decide in your favor, yeah, you're hated when you represent yourself. Um, the on-the-job training that used to exist, used to work just fine. You go and you spend you know, a year, sometimes 20 years, but you spend a year on the job learning. You know, Then you become whatever it is. The employers got lazy and wanted people trained before they got there. That's where you come into, oh, yeah, deal with him for a week and realize he can't add, you know. And so they wanted someone else to train them, and that's why the, the guy that invented the whole public education idea, that was his thing, so that we could create people that could actually do a job. But college is more than just that basic information. The reason you can get a, a decent job with a degree that has nothing to do with that job. I know I, I skipped two pay grades when I went into the Army because I had college. So the reason for that is because they teach you to be on time, to turn in reports on time, to learn a chain of command, to learn how things are done. That's what college is for. College is not about the job you're going to get. It's about knowing that you'll do that job and that they can count on you. That's the whole reason for going to college. And then I agree, they've made it into this business that's not worth the money you pay for. But there's a reason for this paying off all these debts. What they're working on, Biden has signed a thing that puts us on digital money, and they're working on making that happen. He's got all his top people working on how to make that happen. What they want to do is flood the debt so bad that we cannot cure it. And it's already there. They don't realize that if you borrow $1 and you can only pay it back with borrowing more money because that's the only place you can get your money. That happened in 1913 when they took money away from Congress and gave it to the private banks. We were officially slaves at that point. But he needs that number so high that he can wipe out money just like they did with uh, Confederate money and wipe it out and put us on a digital platform of money. That way they can track everything you do every hour of every day and i think it's a genius plan they're working on it they're going to enslave the world with it there's no way that you you can't give them a you know a heads up about that but it's like 
there's your plan. It's falling into place, and it was started in 1913. Thank you, Bird. Appreciate it. Well, I mean, the the notion of someone borrowing money to go to college, I'm fine with that. I mean, I, I don't see any problem with that. Uh, I don't see any problem with borrowing money to go get a car, to buy a house, to improve your home. I mean, that that's your right as an individual. I mean, an American has a right to go borrow money if they can prove that they'll pay it back uh, for whatever they choose to. I mean, people do stupid things. I mean, there are a lot of people that have borrowed money to do stupid things um, that I wouldn't do, but that's not for me to judge. You know, Rev may have an opinion. He, he may have, a, you know, something he wants. And he goes to the bank and says, I want to borrow money to buy these, you know, this snowmobile. But you live in South Carolina. <laughs> I don't care. I still want one. I mean, look at my credit score. Look at my look at my history of paying people back. Um, I, I want to buy that snowmobile. Okay. I mean, how much is it? Twelve thousand dollars. Here's a, here's a, here's a guy in South Carolina. He may go to lunch with his fellow baker. Say, hey, let me tell you about the man who came to my. I mean, he wants to buy a snowmobile <laughs> in the summer in South Carolina, but he's got good credit. And he's got a good history of paying people back or paying institutions back. So I'm gonna let him loan. Uh, you know, so I don't have any problem with that transaction. But once again, you're you're exposed to market forces. You're you're making a dumb purchase, but that's your that's your prerogative. You've decided that's what you want to do. We got to get the federal government out of the student loan business. If you get the federal government out of the student loan business, we'll remove the incentive to drive up tuition. I mean, in all honesty, the universities could charge about what they wanted to now. We've convinced the American public that your kid's going to fall through the cracks if they don't get that degree. Parents are going to do whatever it takes to make sure their kid doesn't fall through that crack. So there is no limit. I mean, I see some estimates by 2030. There'll be about $3 trillion in student debt. I mean, do we just keep on keeping on? I mean, that seems to, seems to be what's wrong. We know Social Security is broken. We don't fix it. We know Medicare is broken. We don't fix it. We know Medicaid is broken. We don't fix it. What makes you believe we're going to fix student debt? I mean, we're printing another $300 billion to forgive debt um, that the government incentivized tuition to go up in price let's go to the phone ray in florence Good morning ray uh yeah this is uh ray uh, i uh just had a couple of thoughts on on the student loan thing uh you know it's kind of interesting that uh i i personally feel that what what uh, biden's doing is buying votes right now uh with uh paying off uh, uh some of the student loan uh wouldn't it be a whole lot better if what he'd do is to to change uh, his policies so that the economy could flourish, so that not only the students would have money to pay back uh, their loan, but uh, those who hadn't gone to college they could invest their money and uh, build a business and and uh, flourish as well. You know uh, what we're doing is just, this is just one of the techniques to drive us more and more to socialism and uh I, it just it grates me that that's what i got thank you ray appreciate that 843-661037 is our number the i mean if that's to and, and i heard that this morning coming over uh, that you know this is kind of a vote buying scheme and you forgive the debt of those who uh, may not be inclined to reward you with the ballot box i mean if we have turned into a country where you can be paid off that easily and that un-american then I'm more certain than I've ever been that we're obviously a nation decline. I mean, there's no debate to have about um, this, that, or the other. If that, if if the price for you voting, the leader of the free world, is whether you'll take my debt 
for an education that I receive and let somebody else pay for it or force somebody else to be responsible for it. I mean, if that's where we are, and that could be. I mean, I could be surprised. I don't think we're there yet. I mean, I think we're headed that way. And it wouldn't surprise me if one day we get there. But, but I mean, if you believe today that, that people will vote for a person because that person had the ability to take debt off of your books, put it on somebody else's books for a service that you received on the books of a, of a person who didn't receive that service, and that's the reason you're voting for that person, we're toast. I mean, we're not, we're not medium rare. We're not medium well. We ain't well done. We're burnt to hell and back, if that's the case. I mean, seriously, think of that, guys. I'm a voter, and I'm an American, and, and I'm, going to, I'm going to base my loyalty at the ballot box to this person because they paid off a debt that I incurred for a service that I received and handed that debt and service, excuse me, that debt without the service to someone who didn't. And I can look in the mirror and be comfortable with the person I see. But I mean, if that's where we are, if, if that's truly where America is, we'll all be speaking Chinese in 50 or 60 years. Let's go to the phone. Davis in Sumter listening to WDXY. Hello, Davis. Ken, Carl Mark's mother once told him, said, Carl, we should get out and make some capital instead of talking about it all the time. But that's not why I call. Uh, now that you and, and Bruce Springbean have had a fallen out, uh, my old hound dog, Jack Legg, thought it would be a perfect time for you to change to a sophisticated singer like uh, Conway Twitty. I like Conway. I always held Conway in high regard. So last weekend, Jack Legg and I went to the flea market to look for some Con- Conway Twitty albums to send to you. I always have trouble getting Jack Legg to go to the flea market because he doesn't like the name flea market. Anyway, I'm flipping through the albums, and I come across a Bruce Springbean album, and I thought, you know, I bet Ken would like this. So I got the guy down to 75 cents. I thought it was a little too high, but I bought it anyway. And I took it home, the package up, sent to you. But before I could, Jack Legg did what he was named for and ruined the album. I just wanted you to know my heart was in the right place even though Jack Legg was in the wrong place. <laughs> I, certainly, I certainly appreciate the thought and, um, and know you mean every single word yeah. without any um, hint of sarcasm. I mean, I know that was sincere, mm, genuine, nice real, heartfelt, no sarcasm whatsoever. Um, just next time you plunder around the flea market, see if you find another Bruce Springbean or Stringbean. Is it Stringbean or Springbean? Okay, good deal, good deal. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate the call. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few minutes. 843 is our number. couple of callers. Let's go there. Dan and Florence. Good morning, Dan. Hey, uh, tune in late today, Ken, and somebody may have already made these points, but I'll try it anyway. Uh, first of all, this is nothing but Democrat vote buying. I'm sure they know they're in trouble in November, and they, they feel like they might get a few more votes out of this. Second thing, the NAACP came out against it because it doesn't pay off enough student debt. And uh, it, it, uh, 
Dog, I forgot my third thing, but <laughs> <laughs> I know how that is. Yeah, but, but anyway, that's a, that's that's what I want. Well, your two points were who was it? Rick Perry. Rick that Perry. Said, yeah, yeah, that. Uh, yeah. Three, th- three of the agencies I'm going to do away with. <laughs> Thank you for the call. Appreciate Education that. Education and yeah. and uh, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. Uh, that's got to be it. I mean, that happens a lot. Yeah. You know, it happens to me all the time. But I mean, you take one person at one point in their lives and they're kind of defined by that. What will Rick Perry always be known as? Here we are talking yeah, about. I mean, Dan Quayle, misspelled potato. I mean, nobody believes Dan Quayle's a, a, a fool. I mean, nobody believes Rick Perry's a fool. You may disagree with a lot of what they say and believe in, but I mean, you just kind of drop the ball at that moment in time and you're defined forever. So, um, yeah, Dan, I mean, you're you've been defined i mean you've been defined um good luck in your future life <laughs> as a caller to talk shows let's, yeah there you go let's take a um let's take another call doug in hartsville good morning doug hey good morning gentlemen um if you take the argument about the uh taking money from one to pay for another's benefit uh we got to follow it to its logical conclusion that's that's basically what taxation is it's um we're going to lobby and ask for government to pay for this and give me this money for this so we can benefit from that. They get the money, and then someone else is forced to pay for it. Like, I don't have children, so I'm paying for other people's children in public schools. There are some roads I'll never drive on that other people are going to benefit from, but i got to pay for that too. Uh, there are companies out there that I'm never going to do business with. I'm never going to patronize. I don't need their services, don't want them, but I'm still getting, they're still getting my money because the government's giving them benefits. Things like this. So if we follow that to its logical conclusion, then we need to be against taxation overall, which I am. So I hope you'll join me in that argument. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm with you but, uh, there, but the only the, the, the uniqueness or exclusive issue we're dealing with here, someone entered into a contract. Somebody signed a contract to borrow money and pay it back. The government is null and voiding that contract. I mean, I, I'm with you. I mean, let, let's do away with, with sales tax. and I mean, excuse me, let's do away with income tax and all these other sorts of ways they confiscate wealth and decide who gets it and who doesn't. But I think that you, because Rev and I were talking about during a second ago, you know, welfare and, and um, unemployment and all these other sorts of things. The unique characteristic about this is um, John Doe, Jane Smith signed a contract to borrow money to pay for a college education. They got the service, or maybe they dropped out, flunked out. I mean, a lot of people didn't, you know, they borrowed the money, didn't stay, didn't finish, didn't graduate. Um, but there's a contract involved in this. And I think that does make it a little bit unique. Rev and I, and I think Jam said this a good while back um, during the break, um, let's forgive half of it. What would college have cost if the government didn't um, create the quandary? In other words, if the government hadn't uh, become such a large part of government student debt, what would the cost of an education really be? Because once again, when the government so affected the marketplace of education, institutions raised their tuition because they could, because the government became the, the big player in all this by guaranteeing all the debt. So if a, if a year at Carolina cost you 25 and you owe 100 for four years, it probably should have cost you 10, maybe 12, cut half the debt off. If the, if the market were allowed to affect the price of higher education, what would it be? And if you owe $100,000 and the market analysis says it would have probably cost you forty, dollars forgive $60,000 of the debt. I mean, that's being very pragmatic. Mm-hmm. My big deal is to forgive all the debts and not allow the government to ever backstop one red cent of student loans in our country's existence. I mean, I think we're better off by biting 
and, and swallowing the best we know how the $1.7 or $8 trillion in student debt in return for the government not being anywhere on the field when it comes to uh, whether or not to, to base uh, subsidize or pay back student debt. But I think some abbreviated or a compromised version of the radical deal would be forgive half the debt because that's about what college would have cost yeah. you. And I think that makes some common sense well, if it, you're it talking does, about doing it. But you're going you're gonna to really have a self-correction in education. I mean, if you're going to do that, are we going to continue on the path forward or are we going to change that? No, you got to fix it. I that. mean, college Somehow. costs about twice as much as it should. I mean, you, you kind of know that. I mean, exactly twice, I don't know. More here, less there, I don't have any idea. Is it specific to housing or, or, or you know, the the um, the uh, curriculum or the professor's style? I don't know. But but it's, it's far more expensive than it should be. And the government's the reason why. The government creates a problem, and then the government tries to come in and save the day. And there's just, I mean, it's absurd. I mean, that, that's an absurdity of where we become as an American people. Hey, we've enjoyed the day. I want to hear from you tomorrow about Friday. Should we or should we not make the last hour of the week a non-political hour? Talk tomorrow.